Regardless of where you stand regarding the conflict of Ukraine, it is a fact that with every military conflict, there are innocent victims of that conflict. And we are seeing that in the millions of people that are being displaced from their homes with potentially no home to return to. So for as long as the conflict is going on, I'm including this segment with every one of my podcast episodes. An opportunity for us to take a minute and a moment for those who are suffering because of the conflict. For those of you who wish, who wish to participate, please hit the pause button for a moment, for a thought, or a prayer. There is continued and urgent need for humanitarian assistance. There are many respectable and notable organizations out there, and I am appealing to all of you to provide support in whatever way you are comfortable with. I know that we are all going through difficult times, so even if you are not in a position to make donations, helping to spread the word would be immensely helpful. With the help of some groups that I belong to, I've compiled a list of some organizations that are helping with the current conflict. And you can find this list at www.coyote.com Ukraine. While it's not a comprehensive list, it does offer us a place to start. Once again, that's coyote.com Ukraine. Thank you for listening to this. I don't often get involved in causes because there are just too many. But while this conflict might hopefully soon be resolved, the humanitarian need will be ongoing for quite some time. Please find a couple of minutes to see how you can help. And like I said, even if it's just to help spread the word, that would be wonderful and amazing. Thank you. The episode that you're about to hear was uploaded in its entirety and unedited. A quick warning that we will be covering some sensitive subject matter relating to alcohol and addiction and will be significantly longer than our usual episodes. If you or someone you know is struggling with alcoholism, addiction, or mental health, we will be including some links in the show notes that will hopefully help. Thank you for listening. I started the Coyote Small Business Podcast as a resource library for small business owners. And along the way, one of the things that we've been trying to do is also provide a small business spotlight to small business owners to give them a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more light. But at the same time, it's, it really isn't just about giving them that spotlight in terms of their business but it's also their journey that's really important and being able to share that journey to so that hopefully some people can connect with it, maybe have a little bit of inspiration from it. Um, but definitely as we learn and grow and along our own journeys, um, these are things from other people we could, that we can learn and glean from. Today, we are blessed, very blessed, um, to have Dan Reeves with us, who has a unique journey, and maybe not as unique as we hope it would be. I think let's, I, I think I, I, I'm just going to introduce our guest, um, Dan welcome welcome and thank you so much for doing this 
Yeah. Good morning, Tom. I'm uh, happy to be here. So, again, I really appreciate you doing this because um, as much as there are a lot of people who are dealing with something similar or have dealt with something similar, not all these people are willing to share in their journey um, because it is something very personal and something that, let's face it, can can bring back some some hurtful memories um, and painful memories. So I, I very much appreciate you doing this. Um, how are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic. It's a beautiful day here in uh, New Albany, Indiana, which is suburb of Louisville, Kentucky. It is uh, gets hot this time of year, but we've had a little stretch here of it being 75 degrees or something and sunny. And uh, man, I'm uh, coming up on the 4th of July. That's unusual for our area. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have any big plans for 4th of July? You know, I usually have a big party down at my uh, camp. I have a I have a piece of property out in the country, but uh, this year I've taken a I've taken a pause on that, and I've uh, been pretty busy. And uh, I'm gonna take this weekend to uh, put some rest and relaxation here at home. Good, good. The R and R is important. Yes, um, very important. But let's, because this is, um, again, apologies to those who are listening, but this is, this, there's there's a very big possibility that this is going to be a long episode. And I hope that y'all will sit through it with us because, um, again, I think that the message is is so pertinent and so important to, to share. Um, let's go back a little bit. So, Dan, you born and raised New Albany, Indiana. Um I hate that we're starting here, but at what age were you introduced to alcohol? Well, it was always normal around my house. It was around, you know, and uh, and I would once in a while take those sips off of dad's top, the foam off his beer and stuff as a little kid. It was kind of a cute thing to do or whatever, you know, uh, there was something to that. So, uh, but the first time I actually drank in like with, with the purpose like that was when I was 14 years old. Uh, it was a snow day. Uh, we were snowed out. My mom and dad both worked and I uh, had a couple friends in the neighborhood and one of them called me and said, uh, Hey man, is your mom and dad going to be home today? I said, Nope. And they said, so they're going to be gone all day. And I said, yeah, they'll be gone. And he said, how about if we get some beer and come over to your house and drink it? And, uh, Although there was there was a nudge deep inside me saying, Dan, you probably ought not do this. Um, I needed I, I, I needed these friends. I felt that I needed that, you know, and it's one of the common things you'll hear around people who are recovering. And, and I don't think it's unique to us, but uh, one of the one of the what I call bell ringers that I talk about when I'm doing my podcast and interviewing people about this stuff. Uh, is that people didn't feel like they fit in. Uh, they felt like the third wheel and the, the oddball. And I, and I do remember feeling like that from the time I kind of ended up into social situations, you know, which was essentially starting to go to school. Uh, I felt like, uh, you know, that, that I was missing some kind of guidebook on how to be a kid. You know, I watched other kids be kids and they seemed to be pretty comfortable doing it. And, uh, and, don't I remember you know trying to mimic what they were doing, you know, and act like them. Mm-hmm. Um, I did have a traumatic thing happen when I was, you know, and it's it's trauma 
that uh, that happened to me when I was a little kid. Uh, I don't know how this all came to be. Um, and I've left it out when I've talked to you before. Uh, I had a sexual relationship with a little boyfriend of mine for about, what, three or so years when I was in like the four, five, six-year-old before I hit grade school. Uh, me and this little boy did everything with uh, each other that two male human beings could do with each other. And at the time I held, at the at the time I had, there's still inside of me was that you probably ought not be doing this, Dan. But at the time, it was enjoyable. And I felt no like, uh, you know, carry on with it for that long. Uh, obviously, there was something going on that uh, that kept me from, you know, from from stopping it. Uh, I know when I decided that uh, that I had to stop it was about the time I got into school and I heard my peers ridiculing gay people just in general. And when I asked what that was, they explained to me what that was. When a guy sleeps with another guy, lays with another guy, and I took a big old whoops. Uh, oh, shit, I've been doing that <laughs> uh, and, and didn't really know that you know, like I said, there was something inside of me saying that was wrong, but, uh, and you know, this guy who, who was, was, uh, his parents, he born one month after me, his parents and my parents were best friends. I saw them all the time. We were buddies. We grew up in cribs together. Right. Uh, I don't know still. Well, I have reconnected with this guy since it was something I carried as a dark secret that I'd take to the grave for a long time. But, uh, This guy is an adult gay male today and is loving life. He is, uh, I won't want to let the cat out of the bag too much because I don't want to, uh, but he is having a very successful life. He just got married this past summer. Uh, and, and, and he looks at that piece of time completely different than what I had spent my entire life looking at. I've come to terms with it a little bit more, but for a long time, I had a lot of shame wrapped up in that. And he looked at it as a, as a, as a good time, you know, a bonding event, right. like we were forever connected and, and, uh, and I blew him off for many, many years, uh, not able to, uh, talk to him or to, uh, have any kind of relationship, any kind of even conversation, uh, for, the, for, for, I don't know, man, it was in recovery when I, when, when we reconnected and we've since, you know, have an ongoing dialogue today. Uh, and to listen to him talk about it, uh, we just had a completely different perspective on, on what happened there. Yeah. So, uh, that played into this coming into school and starting to learn like these, you know, getting what I think, what I found today is faulty teachings, you know, and, and I'm, I'm learning things from my same age peers and they're putting their spin on it that their parents and older siblings have taught them. And so soon as I got this thing, I got to hide. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I have, a, I've already got a handicap on how to be one of you guys. Right. Because, uh, they, so, because from a young age, you felt that you had a part of you that you had to hide. Yeah. And mm -hmm. you know, uh, I, you could use the word. There was a dirt. I had a dirty thing about me, mm -hmm. you know, yeah, I had a, uh, uh, later on in life, I, I look at it, you know, and I thought maybe I was broken, mm -hmm. that I'd had an event in my life that broke me forever. Mm -hmm. And I struggled with my sexuality, obviously, uh, from there out. Uh, I'm a heterosexual male. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I have no question about that mm-hmm. today. Uh, but I struggled with that, whether what, what side of what side was I on, you know, and uh, and I grew up doing sports and things like that. And it wasn't cool to be gay. I saw how the guys who acted a little more feminine, mm-hmm. uh, I saw how they were treated and I didn't want to be treated like that. Right. So when friends came around and asked me, invited me to do something, man, I was hungry for uh, for friendship and fellowship. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like I think we all were, you know, but, uh, you know, uh, if <laughs> there's a AA speaker tape that I love, this guy's name is Earl H. And you can find him on the Internet if you just Google that, Earl H. AA. He says the first thing about the first time he was asked to smoke some pot and drink some wine, he said, uh, it wouldn't have mattered to me if they asked, if they said, let's go kill the Spanish teacher. I'd have went with them, you know, and that's kind of, I really related to that because it really wouldn't have mattered what those guys asked me to do that day. Right. If they just said, let's go sledding. I'd have been sledding that day instead of drinking. Mm-hmm. But they said, let's drink. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and my answer is yes. Mm-hmm. Whatever it takes to be a friend. Mm-hmm. And how much did you have that day? You know, I wish I could remember, uh, I don't know how those little kings come, but my buddy brought it on moped. One guy come on over and he, we were sitting here and a guy drove down the street and I always like to tell this story because he wiped out his moped at the base of my driveway. And, uh, we immediately ran out there to, uh, to help him. And, uh, and it was a significant amount of snow. It was like six inches or something of snow. You know, you really had no business being on a moped when it's like that. And, uh, <clears throat> and I remember today, I can still remember reaching down and pulling the beer and he did a good job of saving the beer too. And we made sure it was safe before we picked, uh, Tracy up and picked up his moped. And, and we came in the house and, uh, I live in the same, I've, I've since bought my parents home. Uh, I live in my childhood home today and I am sitting at the same table, which those drinks took place, uh, in the same house, same room. And, and we came in here and sat down in the dining room and proceeded to pretend like adults and started drinking. Uh, I remember the warm, fuzzy feeling coming over me. I remember the, uh, uh, the inhibitions floating off of me and being able to be a little loose and, and, and talk a little looser. And, uh, and then I remember my mom, uh, shaking me in bed, asking me, uh, what was wrong with me? Was I okay? And um, I initially had that panic that I was caught, um, mm-hmm. but I wasn't. I, I found out from my friends that I had uh, uh, had too much. I overshot the mark, and I had thrown up all over the place. And my buddies had uh, thrown me in the shower, hosed me off, uh, put me in bed, and cleaned up all the evidence and cleaned up the mess I made in the house and, uh, and got out of here. And so, uh, mom was, mom nor dad was none the wiser. Uh, I had gotten away with it. And, you know, I think about that. So what was, what was was the thought? What was the thought at that point? I mean, you'd blacked out, you have the, you probably have a massive hangover. Never again, right? Right. I I thought I would do, that's what I was getting ready to say. I remember saying or thinking that, uh, I'm never doing that again. Uh, but it wasn't long. I don't know. I'll, I'll say this thing that if I knew I was going to be telling the story, I wish I'd have kept a better track, but it wasn't long before I was contacting those guys, uh, wanting to know when we could do it again. Uh, my buddy on the moped, I think everybody had one of them friends. He was in the seventh grade and had a full beard 
And uh, back then, you could go to, in Indiana, you had to go to package liquor stores to buy alcohol. They don't sell beer in the convenience stores and mm-hmm. uh, never have and uh, and still don't. And uh, so you had to go into a, a, a licensed package store to get alcohol. And uh, my buddy, Tracy, he could he could go in and get it. So once I knew a guy who could get it, I was calling my buddy Kurt and Tracy again, going, "When can we do? When can we do it again?" And those guys were up for it too. You know, they one one I had to be. I don't know if I had to be careful about this or not. As long as I don't say last names, that's kind of the AA tradition. Uh, Kurt had older siblings, and uh, and and we learned a lot from his older brothers. <laughs> So was it you asking when y'all can do it again? Was it because you wanted to drink again or was it because you wanted to hang out with them and be cool? I think it was both. Mm -hmm. I think it was both. Uh, I do believe uh, that there's some element. There's a, there's a genetic component of this disease of alcoholism and, um, and, and looking back on my history today, doing the work that we do, the inventory work and uh, examining our past, I do believe that I've had this uh, uh, tendency uh, from birth, essentially, that once I, uh, uh, once I put some in me, I want to do it again. That's the two keystone things when people come to me and they say, hey, Dan, I'm, I think I might be having a problem with my drinking. Uh, I say... Have you ever <clears throat> tried to quit and couldn't? Mm-hmm. Or when you do drink, do you tend to drink more than you mean to? Mm-hmm. And if you answer yes to one of those two things, the book says you're probably alcoholic. And that's the one thing I could never do. I could never stop entirely. And mm-hmm. when I drank, so I had and. When I drank, I ended up typically overshooting the mark and drinking more than I meant to, you know, say, Hey, man, I'm just going to go watch a ball game and have a couple beers. And that would not happen. <laughs> right. So you're 14 when this happened. Yeah. Were you then introduced to other substances? Yeah. Same time. Uh, you know, um, this is not probably completely politically correct or whatever, but these guys that I drank beer with were from one side of the tracks. Mm-hmm. I had also at the same time joined up with some friends, uh, just so happened that when they put us in junior high school, you were in homerooms by your last name. Mm-hmm. So everybody with R and P were, uh, in the same class and two guys I took a liking to, cause they looked like the cool guys, man. I mean, like they reminded you of like the fawns. <laughs> you know, that was, that's the kind of thing I saw when I hey. saw these couple guys. Yeah. And, uh, you know, kind of tough and, or the, or the one character, uh, was it the Bender, John Bender character in the breakfast club? Mm. You know, they remind you of that kind of thing. And, uh, and I started being friendly with those guys and, uh, turned out both of those guys' parents sold marijuana and, uh, they kind of said the same thing, except for they didn't invite me to smoke. Uh, you know, it was one day we were just kind of hanging around and one got a joint out, and fired it up and passed it around, you know, and, uh, it's, you know, I'm certainly not going to, you know, I, I'm going to smoke it. I'm not going to pretend like I, you know, even today I have to be careful. Uh, you know, my ego does not want to get caught thinks getting, get caught seeing that I don't know what I'm doing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, and that was the kind of same feeling back then. Uh, I just took it and I smoked it and 
and it was actually easier to come by with those two guys uh parents they would they would what we call pinch some from their parents um probably and you know i could go to school high i couldn't go to school drinking and so drinking was like a saturday night or a friday night activity kind of thing you know i right. couldn't do that on a school night get up in the morning and uh um but i could get high on the way to school and at lunchtime and after mm -hmm. school you know and so uh, probably when I was in my teens there from probably 14 or so to 16, I probably technically was smoking more marijuana than I was actually drinking. Drinking was maybe once a month and, you know, here and there, you know, maybe a little more now and again. But um, by the time, you know, I got my driver's license and uh, that was another point where the where the lid come off. You know, once I got a driver's license and I had that level of freedom. Uh, I had my driver's license six months and I got my first DUI. I had a head on collision out on an old country road with a big uh, Chevy Suburban. I was in a little bit of Pontiac Sunbird and uh, it actually that come back to get me later on too because uh, they there was no injuries in the car at the time. And then uh, I don't know, it was like 10 years later, I got called back into court with those people complaining they had injuries from way back then. Oh, no. um, it went away in the insurance. Mm -hmm handled it or whatever i really don't even know what the outcome of it was i mean but i do remember getting called back called back in on that accident mm -hmm. so i spent the night in jail you know uh, scared to death you didn't have any idea that that's was you know uh i can say you know i'm not sure i knew that drinking and driving was even a problem no right. uh, i'm not sure that i was aware of that well most people who do it think that they can right Oh, I yep. only had, you know, two beers or, yep. you know, what have you. I can, I'm fine. I'm a better driver when I'm drinking a little. Exactly. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm more careful because I have to watch out for the cops. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So, yeah, I mean, we've, we've all heard it. And quite honestly, a lot of us have been there. Um, yep. But I'd like to talk to the person who has drank alcohol and didn't drive mm. ever. You know, mm. I don't know that that human being exists. Yeah. You might have been more cautious than some of us in that, but uh, I'll bet you that if you have uh, consumed any amount of alcohol on any semi-regular basis, you've driven right on. Yeah, probably. Um, but you were then introduced some other substances. Yeah, I remember the first time, and and you know to go back into the to this uh, again. I know that I was uh, those same friends I smoked a pot with. Uh, made a plan to get some acid and trip on acid. And I remember that I was still on my bicycle. It was before I ever had my driver's license. So it mm -hmm. was, uh, of course, you know, after that DUI, I spent a couple more years on a bicycle too. But uh, <laughs> uh, but this was actually before I got my driver's license the first time I took acid. And again, it was something, that, you know, uh, once I started getting these substances, it's like starting to like have some kind of feeling like I could control it. You mm -hmm. know, the only thing I knew is I knew that I would be doing more of this, mm -hmm. you know, and when I took some acid and we had the, all the fun we had that night, of course we were drinking and smoking pot too. Right. And, uh, I knew that I would be doing this again. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of like what happened with the, you know, I had the initial thought when I drank that I'll never do this again. And I've said that repeatedly over my years after other incidents that, man, I ain't doing that again. And there's a, what we call a, you know, there's an AA prayer that says, God, if you'll get me out of this, I'll never do it again. <laughs> I've said that prayer plenty of times too over the years. But 
there was a piece of my life where I knew that I was going to continue doing that. Uh, I was introduced to cocaine while I was still in high school. Uh, I went to a vocational school for drafting and, uh, and a guy there was from a different school and uh, found out, you know, he had the cocaine. Cause when you, you, you magnetize to these people, once this starts happening, you start bumping into the right people, you know, it's mm-hmm. technically the wrong people, but right. what you're looking for, you start bumping into these people. And this guy didn't have a driver's license or a car, I guess. And he needed to be places. And uh, I would take him places and he would pay me with cocaine. When I was in my senior year of high school. I say I spent most of my senior year in high school on coke. Uh, I don't, you know, I don't know that I had it the whole time, but the vast majority of my senior year in high school, uh, uh, I had cocaine in my pocket. But it didn't affect your studies. You know, I did decent in school, high school. Uh, hmm. That's another thing, you know, that I really didn't touch about that. Uh, I found this thing that if, if you got good grades, nobody really messed with you. You know, mom hmm. and dad did not really mess with you too much. They would give me freedom as long as my report card was good. You right. Know? Because boys I will be boys, right? Yep. And, uh, and if you could get, you know, uh, I was getting A's and B's in school, mm-hmm. uh, and and you know uh, uh, I couldn't I couldn't continue that pace into college, but uh, but but I did through high school, and I and and you know looking back, you know high school was easy <laughs> compared <laughs> to life. You know, right. uh, the real world is a whole lot harder than high school was, and, and I, you know I'm no dummy. I I'm 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 an intelligent man. Uh, mm-hmm. Um, and, and I, and I got good grades. It didn't, it didn't matter of fact, me and one of those guys kind of had a contest. We actually, uh, we were in a lot of classes together and we kind of competed with one another, which I think helped my gra- both of our grades. Uh, we would get stoned out of our gourd and go into class, man, and make a contest out of who could do, get the better grade and, uh, answer the questions. I remember a couple of times in a class where a teacher would look at us. We, we had class, we had one class where we left. We came to class and then we went to lunch and then we come back to class mm-hmm. and it was an open campus where we were at. So we left the school grounds, got high and come back and you'd see this teacher and we'd sit back down and he'd just give us these looks and then shake his head. <laughs> he, he, he knew, he knew. <laughs> but we were like active in class. We weren't putting our heads down and going to sleep right. and, you know, and we were raising our hand, answering questions and, and asking, uh, you know, when he's, explaining American history, we were, we were interested in, in, in engaging with him. And so he just let us have, you know, he never said anything about it. Mm-hmm. It was, uh, you know, uh, I played ball, uh, all my life. Uh, Kurt, one of those guys came to drink beer with me. I played basketball with him. I'm sorry about that. I need to make that quit making noise. I'm not sure I know how. Um, okay. I'm closest one thing uh i played sports since i was a young kid and and kurt got me into basketball and uh and we were we him and i were good uh we you know i can't believe it i have newspaper clippings from elementary school basketball games where him and my i have a little scrapbook upstairs still have it where it'd say i don't want to say his last name but it'd say his and my last names you know so and so scored 18 last night and the other, and I, and you know, the other one scored 14 and it will be back and forth. I couldn't believe now that, you know, they put elementary basketball score highlights in our local newspaper. 
Uh, and I've got a bunch of them all the way up into high school. And I also have the uh, article that uh, ended my career. Uh, he and I would play uh, would would play a little bit of varsity when we were on a JV. And when we were in junior high school, we got pulled up to the high school to sit and, and we got to play a little JV ball. So we were always being asked to uh, to play a little above our grade level. And uh, when I was a sophomore, uh, you know, this thing where these guys, this this. I don't know, this magnetism to people who do want to do what you do. Uh, there were some guys on the basketball team that also smoked pot and, and, you know, and I had, I had avenues of how to get it by now, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and uh, those guys didn't, and they're asking me how to get it. And uh, we ended up smoking some on a, on the, on the bus on the way home from the way game one night. And that wasn't the first time we did it. But that was the first time we got caught, and that smell moved through that school bus. And I remember when it got to the front where the coaches were, uh, and you could see like the heads turning, man, <laughs> as that smell moved up the bus. Yeah. And when it hit the front, man, those men were up and marched to the back of the bus. And of course, that's where the seniors and stuff were back there, mm-hmm. you know, the real troublemakers. I was a sophomore, had to sit more towards the front of the bus. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and when they unloaded the bus that night, uh, they told us, he, you, 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 and you, you stay here. Rest of you can go. And they let me go. But I got to school the next morning and, uh, somebody had, uh, uh, included me in with all that and, and uh, ended up getting kicked off the basketball team and, um, which crush, which was crushing. Uh, I didn't want to let, let on how bad that was, but like thinking about it today, man, I was crushed. Hmm. Uh, I come home and cried that I was kicked off the basketball team. Um, you know, parents had to come get you from school and they suspended me from school for five days and kicked us off the ball team. And you know what today bothers me? They did nothing, nothing to potentially get us any help or do anything about our drug problem. We just got swept away, man. We just got kicked off the ball team. Three of those. They never had a talk with you? No. 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 You know, uh, this kind of talk, you can't be doing that. You know, but no, like substance abuse education, uh, what this kind of thing that's going to, you know, where this may take you. Uh, But it was 30 years ago. Different times, though. Yep. Different times, man. It is. Yep. Uh, You know, I'm not I'm not resentful about it, but Mm -hmm. but it is something that, uh, you know, today, I think if a kid's in high school smoking pot, they might get him some education first. Right. You know, and uh, and, you know. There's some intervention kind of stuff that could be tried anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if it works on high schoolers because uh, as we was talking, you know, hey, you got that Superman complex. It does nothing, <laughs> can you know, nothing bad right. to me. I can survive anything. But um, that that getting kicked off the basketball team uh, kind of took the lid off my using and drinking, you know, a little bit. I was less concerned because uh, when I was playing basketball, I, I had to do a little bit of uh maintaining a certain personality in order to stay on the basketball team plus you know you had to stay in shape and uh, smoking is not conducive with staying in shape and by now i'm smoking cigarettes too it's about that time i started picking up cigarettes uh i'd smoke cigarettes my mom smoked all her life and i remember taking them uh from her and getting those uh head rushes off of that off of cigarettes and today i also say you know and you say what other drugs was i doing uh, I would include nicotine in there, even though it's not uh, quote you know, unquote, alcohol yeah. and nicotine are not illegal. You know, yeah. you can you can 
course, the cigarette, the cigarettes are going out of vogue now. You know, you kind of get looked at funny if you're smoking today. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's not been that awful long that that's been the deal. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and those two chemicals, uh, cause more problems than, than the so-called illicit drugs do anyway, uh, mm-hmm. between alcohol and, and, and nicotine, uh, th- that's a bigger culprit than the so-called o- opioid epidemic. Uh, I-, I agree that we had an epidemic and we do have a problem with that substance. Also, I'm not, I'm not uh, discounting that at any level. Right, but look up on the internet what the CDC says. Die, how many people die from uh, alcohol-related stuff and tobacco-related stuff? Right, and then look at the number that's happening on opioids, and it's it'll make you it'll make you say uh, make you say hum mm-hmm. uh, when you see the difference in that number. It's staggering. Mm. Um, so I got kicked off that, and then you know they told me to try out again next year. And when I tried out for a basketball team as a junior, I couldn't make the team. Right. Uh, I got cut pretty early. Right. And uh, and then that what that really did, you know, that I just threw caution to the wind in in a lot of regards in because I had a resentment because they they kicked me off the team, and I had a resentment because they told me to come try. You know, they invited me to come back next year, mm-hmm. and then when I did, then they cut me. Mm-hmm. And I don't really think I deserve cutting. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't think I did. I think I was as good as some guys who made the team. And uh, and and I'd already had a black mark on my right, you know, on my name, and mm-hmm. and that's why I didn't. So, you know, uh, it was fun to drink and drug. I had a lot of good times, man. It's a hell of a lot funner than what I saw other guys doing. And uh, and I just started making a regular practice out of it. Uh, it when did it, started, it? When did it stop being fun? when I was about, uh, 35 years old. Okay. So probably. between, between high probably. school and 35, you continued on this journey. Yep. You were able uh, you to know, work I got another through DUI it. When I was 19 and then I never got, then I learned how to do it better. I got mm-hmm. smart about it. <laughs> mm-hmm. I wasn't drinking and driving, uh, at a risky level. Uh, I was doing drugs. I went through a phase where I was doing, uh, every kind of, you know, I, ne- I don't know how I never bumped into heroin early on. I don't know how I didn't do that, but, uh, uh, and you know, some once in a while people would talk about PCP and I never did hit any of that, but, uh, the cocaine and the acid, the math, uh, methamphetamine, what we called back then called it crank. Uh, those were regulars in my life <clears throat> up into my early thirties. And at that point I'd been married for a little while and my wife wanted to have kids and, uh, she just put down all the substances when she wanted to have, get pregnant. Mm-hmm. She stopped drinking, stopped smoking pot, stopped partying, you know, since she put the brakes on it, uh, which meant I had to break on it a little bit, too. I didn't quit, but I slowed way up. Right. So um, she also she also participated. Right alongside me for, right along uh, with you. for years and years. And I, I met her uh, when I was 21 years old. I met her at a party where I had uh, uh, there's a story. I got a million stories and it would take forever if I tell them all but, uh I had a uh, working second shift at the time and a buddy of mine called me up and said, man, you need to get here now. And I was supposed to meet him at this bar that night after I got off work at like midnight. Mm-hmm. It was like 10. And he said, you got to get here now, man. A guy's got a hundred hits of ad for $200. And, uh, and, and so I, I said, man, I can't get there. I can't get off till midnight. And I sit down at my desk for a minute and then I went and told the boss I had to leave. I wasn't feeling good. Went and got $200 out of the ATM. Went to that, went to the place, got that, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, that was a real run where I was taking it every day for a little while, man. Uh, and I met my future wife at a party that I went to. I went to that party for the sole reason to distribute and offload some of this, uh, some of these drugs I had. Mm-hmm. Somebody said, "Hey, man, I know a good party that you can go get rid of some of that." And uh, and I went and I met her that night. And uh, you know, we were together for twenty five years, married for seventeen. And uh, you know, there's a piece of that where you know. Um, back to this thing about not recognizing you have a problem, you know, I've got a house, a beautiful wife, a couple cars, a a nice job I'm holding. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and, and guys that have a problem with that stuff Mm -hmm. don't have what I have, you know, they don't have two cars and, you know, later on it became two kids. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so now I've got a couple cars in the, in, in the garage, not outside anymore. And a nice house and a couple kids and a dog and I've held a job 20 years now. Mm-hmm. You know, by the time I'm getting up there to that 38, 35, 38 years old, I still right. can tell myself that I don't have a problem because of uh, look at look at who I am. So what do you what do you mean by it? Stop being fun. So when I was uh, and again, I don't know the timeline, you know, I hadn't bought this house yet because uh I had my, both my kids were, have been born. Uh, they were probably something like uh, two and four, three and five, something like that. And I just couldn't, I was, I was just down to drinking. I couldn't, I wasn't smoking pot anymore. Uh, and all I was doing was having a few beers most of the time, you know, well, by a few, I meant about 12 pack every day after work. And, uh, and it just made me feel bad. You know, I couldn't get to feeling good anymore when I drank them, <clears throat> and but I couldn't stop drinking them. And there was like this false feeling, like, okay, the next one right. will be the one that makes me that. feel yeah. good. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> no, yeah. well, no, the next one. And you know, I went for a big, huge piece of my life where I didn't, I didn't go into, you know, what say, well, you didn't, I didn't sleep in the big bed. Mm-hmm. I would sleep in my recliner. Uh, <clears throat> my wife never did it until I. She never did understand what was underneath of that until I came out and, and told her. I really wasn't catching any crap from her for my drinking. Mm-hmm. Uh, now and again, I would, but she didn't see how much I was drinking. You become a ninja drinker, you know. Mm-hmm. As long as you're still, as long as there are always a Miller Light can sitting around, I can always say that's only the third one. <clears throat> right, right. Uh, and it just wasn't working. And uh, my mom and dad were uh, watching my kids for me. And I would come home on Fridays. Uh, I come home every day and pick them up. I come home on Friday and pick them up. Sometimes mom would feed me. Uh, my wife is working uh, a night shift all weekend uh, deal in nursing so that she can be home with the kids all week. And I had the kids on the weekend. She basically worked all weekend and I worked all week. And uh, and sometimes she picked up extra shifts. So she was working a little bit uh, other stuff. And, and my mom and I wanted to watch the kids, so they would come over here. Uh, I remember mom had had a surgery, and uh, <clears throat> which she had a bunch of them. I can remember since it's another kind of a trauma thing. I remember I found out my mom had cancer when I was 10 years old, and I heard it clandestinely. Uh, mom sent me outside to, uh, sent me and my brother outside to play while all her uh, uh, brothers and sisters and mom and my dad's brothers and sisters were here, and I knew something was going on, and I let the back door slam and I come around the corner and listened and I heard mom had cancer. Uh, I thought, I thought from that very moment, you know, what that told me was mom was dying. That's what I heard. Mm. Mom's mm-hmm. dying. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, she survived a whole bunch of years after that, but she continually had stuff going on. You know, she went through a bunch of different cancer stuff and she had osteoporosis issues. So she was having surgeries. And, uh, you know, um, when I got hurt when I was a little kid, I, I was accident prone to, and I remember, uh, you know, and I didn't, re- I didn't put this two and two together stuff until later on, you know, in recovery that they were, we would go to the emergency room and they'd say to mom, you know, does he need some pain pills? And she'd say, yes. And I'd get mm-hmm. home and I'd get a couple of pain pills, you know, cause I was really hurt and then I wouldn't need any more. And I know where they went now. And now like, and I, I realized that my mom had a opioid addiction all her life, uh, but, you know, I didn't know that at this time. And I go walking around, I'm pacing the house because I want to get the kids out of here and I want to get back in the car and get home where it's safe and I can drink like I want to drink. And I walk down through the hallway and I turned into my mom's bedroom and on the nightstand next to her side of the bed was two prescription bottles. And I remember just walking over to them, man, and I picked them up and I read them. And both of them said what I, the only thing I really remember seeing is it said for pain. Mm-hmm. And I had pain. Mm-hmm. That's one thing I knew for sure. Uh, what would happen is I started drinking. This headache would come on. This low level headache would come on the minute I started drinking. And mm-hmm. it really never would get any worse. And, you know, it'd still be thumping in the morning when I woke up in the morning. And the only thing I could think about was getting myself to work all day long. And and, and I would drive across the street to the gas station because in Louisville, they sell beer in the gas stations and start over again. Well, I shook out Two big pills. I looked at those and, and one of them had big pills in them. And one of them had little pills in them. And I shook out two of the big pills and two of the little pills. And I remember looking at them in my hand. I didn't read the bottles or nothing. And I throwed the two little pills in my mouth and I swallowed them. Mm-hmm. About 30 minutes later, the world got right again. Almost like that day I sat here drinking beer with those boys here at this table and the right. inhibitions fell off. Right. Uh, I found that later on that was two, uh, two 40 milligram Oxycontins. And, uh, and that will make you feel good if you mm-hmm. like that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, and the alcohol started working again. I could drink. Mm-hmm. And you also the next, the very next night, I got the two other pills and I took them and I had the same experience, even though they were lower tab tens, they were 10 milligram uh, hydrocodones. It's become a, I became a real professional about what pill is what after a while. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so uh, I started visiting mom a whole lot more. <laughs> uh, she was thinking really, what what a lovely son yeah <laughs> come visit and, and, uh, mom, mom, and mom. there's a thing we say around uh recovery circles that like your friend will uh steal your drugs and help you look for them mm-hmm. and uh and i did that with my mom mm-hmm. uh, i would have sit downs where she would call me up and she'd say i don't know what's going on man i'm my pain pills are disappearing and I don't think, I, and she would even say, I don't think I'm taking all of them. Mm-hmm. And we would sit around and brainstorm about what might be happening. You know, is there anybody been around that, you know, ain't normally here? And, you know, and I would sit there and, and deflect right. that stuff. Uh, she ended up getting one of these little medical lock boxes, you know, a little briefcase mm-hmm. kind of thing where you locked your medicine up. Mm-hmm. And uh, that kind of bummed me out for a minute. But uh, I knew that she would end up messing up and she left a combination on them one day. So now I got the combination of it. And uh, when, you know, that really started messing her up was when they were disappearing and they were disappearing out of a locked box. Uh, I eventually came clean on all that and how that happened. You know, what happened, that stuff made the alcohol start working again. 
life was working again. Uh, um, I mean, I felt like I was more productive. You know, like I tell this story, you know, my dad's had a couple of surgeries and this kind of thing. He's getting pretty old. He lives with me uh, and they'll give him some and he'll take a five milligram hydrocodone and he'll be on his couch in bed all day long. It'll knock him off his socks. I take two lower tabs and I'm raking the leaves and vacuuming in the house and looking for something to paint. Uh, <laughs> uh, it just, it was an upper for me. It was an energizer and, uh, and, and it made life good again. But there's, I started getting with my doctor, you know, and, and, and claiming back problems. And so they gave me an MRI, I remember, and then they come back and I thought, well, the jig's going to be up when this MRI comes out. And the MRI said, yep, you do have a problem. And I was like, golden ticket. <laughs> this is good news. Uh, but there was limits about that same time as when they started cracking down on the stuff. Because about the time I first started into them, uh, the, the, the government hadn't really caught on to that, hadn't really started limiting them. And then about that time is when they started making them harder to get. Right. couldn't get refills anymore. You know, my doctor used to give me, uh, you know, a prescription and some refills. And of course, the one thing we did was burn through them before you was ever even thinking about it. I remember the first time I about five days that into my script, I called up the pharmacy and said, I need a refill. And they said, you still have 25 days left. <laughs> <laughs> and like, oh, wow. I didn't know that was the way it worked. Uh, so what happened was, is I started realizing that when I was in somebody's house, be it an aunt, uncle, a friend, uh, any number of reasons that I might be in somebody else's house, if I would look around, I could find some pain medication up in a closet or in a bathroom medicine right. cabinet. Uh, and, and I started cleaning everybody out that I knew, man. Mm -hmm. As a matter of fact, I started thinking like, where haven't I been? I haven't seen uncle Ronnie in a little bit. <laughs> hey, Hey, uh, well, if I come by and see y'all for a little bit, oh, sure, we'd love to see you. And right. I'll be, I'd go over there, bingo, get paid dirt there. Did you uh, did you recognize at this point that there was a problem? You know, I thought if I could get a lifetime supply of these things, there would be no problem. Hmm. The problem was not having enough of them because right. they really did make me feel like I was firing on all cylinders and I wasn't really experiencing any negative consequences. And that's the thing about this disease. Mm. As long as I can fend off the negative consequences, it'll dance with me and keep me going. Uh, right. uh, you have to hit a wall. And it seems to be uh, like guys come into recovery today. And I was like, so what happened? And they said, well, my girlfriend's pissed at me. And I'm like, well, that probably is not going to be enough for you. Uh, <laughs> those are not deep enough consequences. You come in with a prison sentence, then we can talk. So when did uh, you figure that you had a problem? So uh, sometime around June 18th of 2014, I'd uh, had about, well, I went into two, 2014 uh, on another stint of going to rehab. I'd been popped on a piss test at work once that uh, I wasn't expecting, and they found uh, the, the opiates in my bloodstream, and I didn't have no good reason for it. Um, uh, at that time, I'm dancing, you know, I'm lying to people, and I'm trying to figure, I didn't, I didn't. I didn't know they could tell how much you have in your bloodstream. I thought it was a green red thing, either positive or negative. So I tried to tell them I only had a couple and they said, well, you uh, actually, you've got about 10 times the therapeutic dose in your body right now. And I'm like, Ooh, so I started getting these nudges, but you, man, it's tough to look at it and actually say, I got a problem. 
so I come, I went to, I got, I got a divorce in that period of time. So, uh, in 2011, I knew I had a problem. I had, uh, went on vacation and, uh, ran out of pills. And when I got out, ran out of pills, I got angry and nasty and I left the house. We got home from vacation and I left the house for the night and I come back the next morning and I admitted to my wife that I had a problem. Uh, she told me to call my doctor. My doctor essentially said, in short, uh, there's not much I can do for you except for get you a referral to a rehab center, a treatment center. Mm-hmm. I went there and they wanted to keep me. They wanted mm-hmm. me to come inpatient. In hindsight, that's what I should have done, but I thought I was too important. How was the world going to get away with, with me gone? Right. And, uh, and I went in and I got some traction, man. And I started into AA. Uh, when they told me, he, the other thing the doctor told me, he said, have you ever heard of Alcoholics Anonymous? And I lied and told him no. You know, my other two experiences have been back with those 16 and 19 year old court order DUIs. Uh, <clears throat> but they made me go to a couple of meetings. And uh, I went to a meeting and fell in love with it. I got a year sober in 2011 to 2012. And life was never better at that point in time. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and I slipped, I, 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 I did what so many people do. I thought that after a period of sobriety that I could drink again. Right. And I did. And I picked up, a um, my, my wife had, a, a bottle of brandy sitting there and I was sitting on the computer one night and I went and got a Dixie cup and I poured it full of brandy and I sat at the computer and that warmth ran over me. Uh, I had quit the pain pills. I quit the uh alcohol wasn't smoking dope had a year of sobriety and um that's not exactly true i still had a little i hadn't drank in a year and i wasn't taking pills like i used to uh i certainly was not at any real level uh, a regular user I, i i did i did i didn't have a true year of sobriety when i went up to get that one year token and that, uh, when I took that glass of brandy, man, uh, <clears throat> it says, there's another thing that says, uh, uh, when the alcoholic takes a drink, the drink takes the alcoholic. Right. Back to that thing, man. And this, this phenomenon, of cra- uh, phenomenon of craving, we talk about this, like it's similar to an allergy, uh, except for it's weirder than that. But once I have a drink, I'm going to have another. Mm-hmm. You know, I used to think I got drunk on that 12th beer, but the truth of the matter is I got drunk on the first one. That was right. where the problem was. Right. And uh, <clears throat> She caught me drinking and she saw sober Dan and she was not willing to go with da- drunk Dan anymore. And uh, ultimatum to a, a divorce. No, there was over. She wouldn't. That was over. Okay. She was, she was, she was done. Uh, so the divorce was final, you know, uh, by then, you know, here's another excuse of why do I have to put a lid on things? You know, I'm divorced now. Screw it. Uh, I'll drink the way I want to again. And I started down that path again. Uh, I started stealing pain pills again. I started actually uh, breaking into houses and and, and stealing them. Uh, I made another run at sobriety in the beginning of 2014. And I went to an inpatient this time. And I did the inpatient. And then I did the outpatient treatment. And, uh my divorce was final in March of 2014 and I had 90 days of sobriety and my company sent me to Thailand. I got to go all over the world with that company that I worked for. And, uh, and it was like a reverse bachelor party. I stayed sober four days in Thailand 
And uh, on day four, <clears throat> I told those guys I, I wanted a beer. And uh, even my friends knew I was sober when they're going, no, 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 Dan, no, no. And I'm going, give them that look. No, you're not going to tell me what to do. How long at that, at that point had you been sober? About 90 days again. 90 days. Okay. You know, and, uh, and, uh, but I told myself I would only drink in Thailand. When I got home, I would stop. Right. And when I sat down to come home and then you're in business class and they said, Mr. Reeves, what do you have to drink? I said, I'll take a gin and tonic. When I get off this plane, I won't gonna, have yeah. another one. Yeah. I'm going to drink on the way home to deal with this 30 hour flight. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and, you know, this is kind of crazy sounding and it almost doesn't sound the truth to me. Some things I say, I wonder about that. But uh, I, uh, I was almost we were we were coming down to land. And uh, I remembered that I had a refill on a pain pill prescription on my phone uh, oh, at no. the Walgreens. And uh, and I sent I had it moved from my Walgreens to the 24 hour Walgreens. And when I landed, my dad picked me up and he had my kids with him. And, you know, it's like midnight on and uh, they come up and run and hug me because I've been gone for three weeks. And uh, I said, oh, dad uh, ran out of my blood pressure medicine. We got stopped by the pharmacy on the way home. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and I, I didn't stop a thing. I just kept on going. June, uh, I'd, I'd picked up a new girlfriend as soon as I got home from Thailand. And she was over here June 18th. Of 2014, she was over here. We were watching TV. She had a little girl. My kids were here. Uh, my kids were in uh, her daughter and my daughter were asleep in my daughter's room. My son was asleep in his room. And I'm sitting on the couch beer, watching TV with this girl. And I tell her, I'll be back in just a minute. Because across the street from me was an old man that I had found out had a steady supply of pills and I could slip in his house and get them just about any time I wanted to. And, uh, they had, we went through a little dance song and dance. I say, you know, after a little bit, I'd go over there. The door was unlocked and I would walk right behind them. Uh, they would be watching TV and have it mm -hmm. up so loud that I would enter their house in the daylight, walk behind them and go steal his medications and walk back out of the house with them, none the wiser. And then I started doing it in the middle of the night and he would be asleep in his bedroom with the TV on and the TV would be glowing in the room. And I would walk in the house. It was always unlocked. Uh, and go in there and take some of his pills and leave. And uh, after a while, the door started being locked. But, you know, there's something about me. I They left a brick out. Uh, they left a key out under a brick in the front yard where the key. So I pick up that key and I entered that house. Right. And uh, this night I went over there and I twinkle toed myself into his house. And I went back and I opened up the, the, the dresser drawer that had the medications and I shook me out a handful of them. When I turned around, there was a silhouette standing behind me who had a can of pepper spray that he immediately sprayed in my face and a baseball bat. And uh, he started going to town on me with both of those. We were in kind of a tight hallway, so he couldn't really get a good swing on me with that baseball bat, but he was trying. And I blasted past him. I, I just bulldozed him. Uh, I ran out the door. Uh, I didn't run to home. I ran up the alley down the street and, and just ran as hard as I could. Cause I remember, you know, I thought he was behind me. You know, I thought I was being chased. I thought he would be chasing me. So I ran as fast as I possibly could. Uh, I remember when I was in high school, there had a little period where I was being bullied and I had to run home from school to keep from getting beat up. Uh, and, and that, I, that reminded me of that, that, that running for your life type feeling that I felt when I was, uh, when I was a kid. And, uh, you remember I told that girl, I'll be right back. 
uh, I take off. I'm hanging around town, uh, you know, around the neighborhood. It didn't take long till my whole street was full of cops. Uh, the red and blue lights were going every place. It was summertime. I'd had to take off my shirt because it was so full of pepper spray. I couldn't hang with it. I went to somebody's backyard and found a garden hose, and tried to wash that stuff off of me. Uh, it's almost impossible to do that. Uh, I felt like mucus was coming out of every orifice in my head, man. It just from that pepper spray, just, you know, just, just, um, I kept on coming back to the house and then I just, and then I'd walk away when I saw the cops were still here. And you know, like every half hour, you know, I didn't have a watch and a phone. I don't know what time it is. Uh, I knew I was in a lot of trouble, man. Uh, over and over again, I started repeating this thing and it, and it, and I noticed myself doing it over the years going, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. Uh, I thought about stepping out in front of a semi truck that night. Uh, thought that might be a solution. Uh, didn't do that. Why, why though? Why, why did, why were you thinking that you want to, I don't know how to escape this trouble. I'm getting ready to be in. Okay. Uh, the shame, uh, you know, I'd had some sobriety. Uh, here I am. Here's little Danny fucking up again. Uh, so finally, I come back and the cops are gone. And I'm leaning on the back fence and I'm looking at my house. And all the lights are on in my house. And I know it's got to be someplace around two in the morning. So I slip up around the side of the house and I look around the front. And uh, two things surprised me. One thing surprised me was that girl's car was still here. Uh, the other thing that surprised me was my parents' car was in the driveway. Hmm. Uh, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. I sit down in my backyard under this big pine tree, and uh, I just sit down, put my arms across my knees, uh, put my head on arms again, you know, trying to brainstorm some way out of this situation, some way to make this disappear. And uh, I heard my back door come open. And my dad walked out the back door and he had uh, two five-gallon buckets in his hands and they looked heavy. And he started coming down the sidewalk, the little the stepping stones that would lead to where the garbage is. And, and I'm right there beside that. And man, I was like curled up in the smallest ball I could possibly be hoping that he would walk by me and not see me. And I heard him set down those two buckets. Uh, and he said, Dan, is that you? Are you okay? Are you hurt? And I told him that it was me and uh, I'm not hurt. I'm not sure I'm okay. And uh, at that very moment, uh, I felt him sit down next to me and he put his hand on my leg. And, uh, you know, that's a hell of a guy, but that was not something I was expecting. I'm expecting to get, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm expecting to get yelled at. I'm expecting to be in trouble again. And he puts his hand on my leg and he says, uh, Let's go in, take a shower, get the sack. We'll deal with this tomorrow. It's all going to be okay. And I, I can, you know, I will never forget dad doing that. Now, what I found out he had was two buckets full of glass because that guy did not chase me. He came straight over to this house and he raked out the side lights in my front door with a baseball bat, busted the big window out of my front door, entered my house and proceeded to bust the heck out of everything he could bust. Glass, mirrors, uh, china cabinets. And uh, here you have you have a lady in the house who has no idea what's going on. She has no idea what's going on. 
she had been uh, timing wise, you know, and I got this story after the fact timing wise, she had, uh, uh, she was in the bathroom when she started hearing the noise. Ouch. Now she's thinking, you know, where's Dan? Cause I've been gone. She said, thought it was maybe 20 minutes now. Uh-huh. And, um, so she runs back in between the back at the bedrooms and crouches down by them bedrooms going to protect those little kids back there from whatever was in the house. She had no idea what was going on. And she started coming at, she heard the noise quiet down a little bit. She started coming up the hallway and, uh, and, and that man and this woman met face to face, uh, having no idea why the other one was there, mm-hmm. what he was doing. She, she said, where's he at? She said, I don't know. He, he told me he'd be back in a minute and he's never come back. And, uh, so dad is cleaning up all that glass. Uh, I walk in the house. Uh, I still remember the shame of, the, of walking in here and you know, that, that girl's eyes look like mine. You'd think she'd been pepper sprayed. She'd been crying so hard. My mom looked that way. Uh, I came in and sat down for just a minute. I didn't have no answers. Mom and dad knew what was going on. They knew it. You know, I'd, I'd, I'd already out of myself a few years ago about my problem and they knew the problem was back. Right. And I, uh, I did, I, I got in the shower and somehow I laid down and went to sleep. And I woke up in the morning, got ready for work, got the kids up. The kids are looking at all the broken windows. Dad had taped them all shut and done stuff to seal them up. And they're like, what's that? What's that? The cops had come over last night and searched my home Mm -hmm. and they had went into my kids' bedrooms and had shined flashlights in their closets and under their beds. They went and looked in the attic and in the crawl space and every place else looking for me. Uh, and my kids slept through that. And, uh, uh, that's one of my miracles on my list is that my kids slept through that and they don't have to have the memory of the police looking for their dad like that. Uh, I had a bright idea in the morning though. I got up, got ready for work. I went out in the backyard. I rolled over the rock where I'd put those pills last night and I grabbed those pills and I throwed a half a dozen of them in my mouth and stuck the rest of them in my pocket. And I was proceeded to head into my day. There's a line in the big book that says that we can't remember the, the humiliation and the suffering of a week or even a month ago. And I couldn't remember the suffering and humiliation enough from last night, not to take some more pills. I put that girl in my car with the kids, mm-hmm. told her to go up the street and meet me at Wendy's. And I got in her car. Cause if that dude come out to stop with my car, it would be them and not me. Right. It's, it's insane, sick thinking. And I went on with my day, you know, and I come home from work the next day and I parked in the back instead of the front. Uh, my doorbell rang a couple of times. I didn't answer it. Uh, I don't know what to do. Uh, I just gotten done with that divorce and, uh, I thought I maybe need to get a lawyer. So I called my divorce attorney and she hooked me up with the criminal guy that was in her office. Mm-hmm. And he told me, don't talk to the police. <laughs> uh, you can say, no, don't open the door. If they come to your door, tell them you've been advised by your lawyer not to talk. Mm-hmm. And that's what I did. Uh, one night my, I was actually in bed and that girl was here. How she's staying with me, that's another thing, man. What what people will do, it's crazy. 
you know, you, if you had, <laughs> if you were in your right mind, you would exit stage left and never come back. Uh, my garage door comes open. I got two garage doors. It's a double garage and it's got each have individual doors and my garage door comes open. Mine. The other one's always empty because by now I'm here by myself and that girl's car was in there sometimes. And I thought, what the heck? I got out of bed and I went out there and my garage door was open and I pushed the garage door to shut it again. And about five seconds later, my doorbell rang. Somehow the police opened my garage door in order to see if I was here. And that was the sign for them to know to do that. And I know there's a, uh, bad guys have code things where they just go through neighborhoods and hit these things and it sends off the garage door codes and some of them might come open. Right. Well, those uh, police opened up that garage door and, and that was the first time I told them, nope, I've been advised not to talk to you. And they're going, oh, come on, Mr. Reeves, just open the door. And I'm going, nope, I'm not opening the door. I've mm-hmm. been advised not to. And uh, my lawyer told me what was going to happen. And he said, you know, if this goes on and like it probably will, there'll be a warrant issued for your arrest. And, and uh, let's just sit around and wait for that to happen. And he told me how to go online and watch for me to get a warrant out on me on for me. So every hour for the next few days, I'm opening up this website looking to see if I have a big red W next to my name. Mm-hmm. My name's in there because the arrest warrant is in in the system. And uh, when the warrant come out, uh, he said, he let me let he said, okay, now you need to make sure you don't get pulled over for nothing. Is there any way you can like uh, stay out of town for a few days? I said, yeah. I went over and now I'm staying at that girl's house in in Louisville, and. Uh, and I'm going to work and I'm carrying on my life like normal, man. I didn't tell my ex-wife what was going on. Uh, and um, my, you know, my parents know and they're calling me, asking me what I'm doing. And I'm just pushing them down the road. I'm not one to talk to them about it. And um, he arranged for that. And I went down and turned myself in. And I went in front of this Judge Cody down here in New Albany. And he, uh, another thing I'll never forget the rest of my life, he said, uh, Mr. Reeves, the Sentencing guidelines for the crimes you committed is six to 20 years in the Indiana Department of Corrections. And uh, that got my attention. And you asked what happened that made me know I had a problem. I don't know that I really got to terms that I had a problem until that judge said that. Hmm. Then I knew I had a problem. And again, it's my consequences. It's not. It's not the drugs. It's not that. Now, I started going to court, doing all these pretrial conferences and stuff, which you don't get to, I didn't get to participate in. I'd have to meet down there and they'd have to see me. I'd have to check in so that they knew I showed up. And then I'd go sit on a bench and my lawyer and the prosecutors and them kind of people would go back in some room and talk about what they were going to do with me. And then my lawyer would come out and take me in a little room and tell me what they said they were going to do to me. And from the get go, they really weren't going to look at the, you know, that 20 years was, I'm, I'm not getting that. It's a first time offense for something like this. Now, they know I've had the alcohol, the DUIs in the past. And, and I did skip over when I was 38. I had another DUI. Um, so now by now I got three DUIs in my past. And I've been picked up for drugs when I was a kid, but it always got swept under. It always got put away. And I'm not sure that I don't, that stuff's not on my record today. Uh, I really don't know what happened. I know a couple of times the cops took our pot and took it. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure they took it home to use it because <laughs> they didn't arrest us. And they didn't, we didn't get any kind of paperwork. We didn't get anything but a warning, but uh, 
but they said they wanted me to do uh, the six years and, and the neighbor, the neighbors around here who had caught wind of it, plus the people I had, uh, the victim had been down talking to the prosecutor, telling them they wanted me to do jail time. Mm-hmm. And I, uh, I, uh, was it, walked the, that out, man. Um, was it the ahead. prospect of jail that was freaking you out at that point or the prospect of not being around your kids? having your life disrupted <clears throat> the combination uh i knew that if i went to jail that i'd lose my job i'd lose my kids i got this place in the country uh i got this house here you can't make house payments while you're in prison uh i just saw that my entire life was going to fall before me man uh, everything that er- everything that counted for anything i was getting ready to lose all those things earlier i was saying see i ain't got a problem all that stuff was in, in in jeopardy. Right. Uh I would go down on uh to do these pretrials and I would take the entire day off work and I would leave the they would always be in the morning and I would leave that and I would go to the liquor store and I would get the appropriate amount of liquor and I would come home and drink myself into oblivion. And I to, I, I couldn't deal with the remorse and the shame from being down there, man. I had to have some way to put that fire out. And alcohol, I'd stop doing, I wasn't stealing pills. I wasn't breaking in houses. I wouldn't do anything else. But here I've got those consequences on my shoulders and I still can't stop drinking. You know, I'm on, I'm on uh, uh, release, you know, from jail. To, uh, I'm bailed out and you're not supposed to drink. That's part of the terms of it. When you're, when you're, when you're on bail, uh, you're not allowed to have drugs or do any drinking. Right. And I still couldn't. Uh, I, I started going back to AA, uh, but you know that I felt like a retread, man. I felt like I couldn't, I don't know. I just, I didn't feel it once again and feel like I belonged in there. You know, I had that one year of sobriety and then I failed again. And then you got to go in these rooms and tell everybody you screwed up again. I started going to meetings I hadn't been to before because that way I didn't have to tell them. I could just walk in there and pretend because I knew some jargon and I could walk in and tell people I was okay, you know. And oh yeah, I'm just trying out new meetings. You know, right. I'm not being honest. Right. And uh, I was going to a step study thing on Tuesday night, and, and I actually told some guys uh, some of my some of the guys I was hanging around with when I had that year of sobriety. I told them what was going on. And, uh, started kind of moving back in with them a little bit, but uh, I had a friend at work that uh, had the same problems as I did. And I remember years ago, man, you should say that drunk dude ought to be fired. And here he got drunk again and ran. He was on. He was getting sent to Thailand, and he crashed his car into the airport up in Cincinnati. Uh, pre-gaming, he drank <laughs> drinking on the way to the airport, and so he's in trouble too. And I knew he was in trouble, so I told him, man. And so we kind of bonded a little bit because we were both in trouble. And he was telling me about this Tuesday night meeting that I should go to. Well, there's this thing about alcoholism and maybe me specifically, that if you bring me something that's working for you, I instantly reject it. I mean, you know, I got this. No, thank you. You know, and I even look at it like, you know, I think about like being someplace and a plate of cookies comes around and they go, would you like a cookie? No, I'm okay. I'm good. You know, would you like a, no, I'm good. I'm good. I, I, I just can't accept help from people. And, uh, he would invite me to that meeting and I, and I couldn't do it. I had something going on. I was, I'm, I'm good, dude. And, um, something happened to that little step study closed down and now I don't have anything to do on Tuesday nights. And this guy invites me to go to that meeting. 
uh, he's, he had invited me to go to that meeting and he stopped inviting me. You know, he stopped asking. So the, to this day, I walk up to him and I said, hey, man, is that Tuesday night meeting still going on tonight? And he eyes brightened up and he's like, yeah, man. You know, because here I finally am like going right. to let him help me. Right. And, you know, right. he's been telling me about this and uh, this and everything. It had to be my idea before I was going. I wasn't going to take an invite. It had to be my idea. Yeah. Um, he said, uh, so we, I do remember, he goes, oh, man. And I was like, oh, shit, what's up? He goes, uh, the church is busy tonight and we're doing it in some guy's ba- in some guy's basement. One of the members is holding it in his basement. I'm like, Boy, that's different. I've never seen that happen before. And I, uh, so we left and we went there and we went down in this basement and uh, you hear this said in recovery too, man, but it, there's a thing that says, keep coming back until the miracle happens. And uh, if I've done anything right in my recovery, that's one thing is that I did keep coming back. And I sat in the basement with these men. It was a men's only meeting, you know, up until now, I couldn't think of any sense why it would make any sense at all. I'm single. Why would I go to a damn men's only? Uh, just didn't make any sense. And uh, these guys started sharing down there in a way that I hadn't heard people share in AA uh, before. Most of the time, I remember people talking about kind of like party line AA stuff, you know, the the stuff that's out of the book. And I am a fan of the book. But these guys were talking about what was going on in their lives. Hmm. And, uh, you know, one guy cried and something hit me, man. And, uh, and I heard one guy share that night that touched me more than the rest of them. There's a couple of guys, but I heard one guy talk and he was like talking with my voice. I, he was saying things that, that, that is exactly how I feel. And uh, so I started going to that meeting, but I would go in and I did the same bullshit. Man, I walked in there and told him I'd had a little, I've had a little sobriety. Nice to meet y'all. Good. And I didn't tell him the truth. I, I didn't tell him the pickle I was in. Right. And, uh, there was a Tuesday, uh, I had a court appearance. And remember how I used to tell you I got drunk every time I had a court appearance. Mm-hmm. And uh, I went to court and I thought about stopping by a liquor store, but I thought, man, that meeting's tonight. If I get drunk, I won't go to that meeting. And I really want to go to that meeting. And the guy that uh, always uh, shared the really good stuff, uh, they did a thing at the end of this meeting and they, and we still do it today. Cause that's my home group still today. And they say, uh, okay, any, every man that's available and willing to take a man through the 12 steps, please raise your hand right now. And so guys raise their hands. So like, if you want somebody to sponsor you, here's some guys that are volunteering to do it. And that always, I like that. Cause if you go up to a guy and you got cold caught, you're asking cold and he says, nah, man, I can't, you know, and it's just crushing. I, I can't yeah. go up and take that kind of rejection. There's no yeah. way. And the guy I wanted to sponsor me never raised his hand, man, because I would watch every time when they'd ask that question. I'd watch for him, and he didn't raise his hand. So before, you, you've been to AA before, and yeah, you, you, you never you – ne- you didn't get a sponsor at those? I had a sponsor, but, man, I did everything my way. I tried to find all the loopholes, you know. Right. I mean, I understand how all you losers might have to do all this work, mm-hmm. but I'm different. <laughs> right. I can get by on – the short, yeah. give me the short program. Give right. me the cliff right. note. Right, right. Uh, so I pretended, mm-hmm. you know, and, but, you know, today I look back and that's the best I could do. You know, mm-hmm. it wasn't like I was doing that on purpose. That is the there's this thing about cunning, baffling, and powerful uh, is, is some words they talk about this disease that uh, uh, this disease is like a parasite, man. It had, it hijacks my operating system and I'm not really in control. 
Mm-hmm. Everybody looks at Dan and thinks that, you know, what's Dan doing that for? You know, and why is he? And, and I kind of look like I got a little control over myself, but the disease just straight up hijacks you. And that's part of this mental thing where it rewires you. Right. And, uh, and I don't know what I'm doing. That's why you need a sponsor to take you by the hand and tell you what to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, reprogram some of this stuff. So, um, so this, so, so you, you, this person that you'd been listening to that you really resonated with. Yep. So I walk in that meeting that night and I wasn't able to drink all day. So I'm carrying that grief that I have from that court meeting and see it was, I was successfully drinking that out of my system by tomorrow. Every time I did it mm-hmm. today, I didn't do it. We do this thing called a burning desire. We still do that today. Has anybody got a burning desire? They have something that's threatening their recovery, a life situation or anything at all that is threatening your recovery, your sobriety today. And I had seen some guys do that before. And it just hit me right at that moment, man. I, I can get honest right now. And I just raised my hand, man. And I told those men for the first time exactly where I was at. That I thought I was, that I'm looking at six years in prison. Uh, here's what I've been doing. And, you know, for, uh, for a couple of months, I've been walking in there saying I'm okay. Right. I said, you know, I've been lying to y'all. But really and, at the same time, you know, as much as you're dealing with that right now, you're still to that point, you're really still lying to yourself. Oh yeah. How yep. did that, so how did opening up for that? How do, how was that you? It was a, it was wonderful, man. And AA does what AA does, man. And they surrounded me with uh, what we call experience, strength, and hope. And those guys shared with me. And, 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 uh, and you know, uh, I love things to be about me. You know, and all of a sudden that meeting's all about me. <laughs> and uh, I do remember a couple of things. I remember a guy saying, hey, it's my experience that guys who work these 12 steps and practice these principles in their lives won't go to jail. They don't go to jail. And a couple of people nodding their head. Yep, yep. And, uh, and I heard another guy said, you know, but if you do go to jail, We'll come see you. And, uh, and, but I do remember that. That's something that I still say. That guy said, if you work these steps and practice these principles in your daily life, you don't go to jail. And I thought, hmm. And directly after that meeting, I got up and uh, that man that never raised his hand, I saw him making a beeline at me and I almost wanted to run. And he come walking up to me and, uh, and he said, man, what you said really touched me. And he said, uh, I'd like to sponsor you. Hmm. And uh, I tear up thinking about that, man, because that was the moment my life started changing for the better. Uh, he said, but, and I thought, oh, gosh, here it comes. And he goes, hey, do you have a big book? And I said, yeah, yeah, I got a big book. He says, it's got any writing in it, any highlighting or anything like that? And he go, I said, yeah, yeah, it's got all kinds of stuff highlighted in it. He said, get rid of it and get a new one. We're going to start over fresh. Mm-hmm. He said, my only time to sponsor people to work with God right now is uh, the hour after this meeting. Are you available every Tuesday night, the hour after this meeting? Because I want you to meet with me every week. Uh, and he went through some 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 conditions that I had to go, that I had to agree to. And everything he said, I said, okay. He said, I want you to call me every day. I want you to call me between one and three. And the very next day I called him at two o'clock because that is between one and three. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and I really did. I just surrendered to this man. And uh, at times I would sit around and talk to him and tell him, but you don't understand, Christopher, this is a, you know, they're sending me to prison. What good is it to do this work? And he just kept on encouraging me to continue to do this work and continue, you know, and, uh, 
And my sobriety date is January the 1st of 2015. Uh, it was an accident that it was New Year's Day, but I've been going to that meeting for a few months and I wasn't sober. And that's another thing I got honest about. Uh, I really had to backtrack it in the last time. I didn't really know what my sobriety date was because when you're happy, drinking, you ain't keeping track of the last time you did it. <laughs> and I had to go back and think, when was the last day I drank? And, and New Year's Eve during the day was the last time I drank. So uh, uh, I was able to determine a sobriety date. And ultimately, it doesn't matter if it's right. Just pick one and move forward with it. Make sure you haven't drank since then. <laughs> uh, you don't want necessarily to be any earlier, but if it's later, no big deal. Um, this guy walked me through this work and, and I watched things in my life start changing. Uh, when I walked out of that church that night, I remember looking up into the sky, knowing that something had just happened that was special. Uh, and I had this feeling that, that I was, that I was going to be okay. Well, no matter what happened, mm -hmm. uh, we started meeting. Uh, I was real close to the end of my sentencing you know, where they were going to sentence me. And now they had come down to three years. And my buddies told me, don't worry about it. you. only had to serve a year and a half uh, in Indiana. Right. And I'm like, oh, you know, I, I can't do that. Uh, I was looking for escape routes there too. I thought, man, if they, if they give me some time between my sentencing and my, uh, when they actually lock me up, uh, which they do sometimes, uh, they're not going to find me. I'm disappearing. Um, but, I'd asked for home incarceration a couple of times. My sponsor would tell me things. Ask your lawyer if you can get home incarceration. Okay, lawyer, can I get home incarceration? I don't know. I'll check on it. Let me get back with you. Nope. They said, no, nope, they're not going to let you do home incarceration because you was you can't do home incarceration in that home because you was breaking in that house across right. the street. Right. You know? And so one time my sponsor come to me and said, uh, got a new angle. Let's ask for home incarceration again. And I was like, man. We already done this. He said, yeah, I know, but let's ask and see if you could do your home incarceration someplace else. And, and man, I, I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to ask. I don't want to ask people for things, man. Just, just go my way and leave me alone. You know, <laughs> uh, I'm not even going to tell you what to do and I want you to do it anyway. And so I go talk to my lawyer and he goes, he laughed at me at first and he, he did the same thing. He goes, uh, we've already done it. I said, no, hold on a minute. And boy, if I did it someplace else. And he said, where are you going to do it? I said, well, one thing would be was I could do it at my mom's house. Another thing I could do is I could move into one of these men's recovery centers that are around here. And he said, okay, which one you want to ask for? And I said, I asked for mom and dad's house. And uh, about two weeks went by and uh, he called me up and he said, I got good news. Uh, they're good with the home incarceration if you go someplace else. And, you know, and, and, and I've been doing this work. Uh, to the best of my abilities, I've been following my sponsor's suggestions, and I've watched that happen. I've sponsored over 20 guys over the since my seven years of sobriety, and I see this happen over and over again. It's not a fluke that when a man turns his will to, to, to work these steps and to practice this way, things in his life start getting better. I mean, it is like, it's almost like magic. Uh, and, you know, and, and the stuff doesn't seem related at all. Mm -hmm. uh, I didn't tell the courts I'm working the 12 steps. You know, right. uh, I did go into rehab for uh, again, you know, because my lawyer said it would look good. Um, and when we got down to that, you know, I, 
I had all this figured out and uh, I went to my mom and dad's house the week before I was going to be getting sentenced so I could go back here and here I'm 45 years old and I'm cleaning out my mom and dad's back bedroom so I could move in with them for a year. And when I walked in the house, uh, at the moment I walked in the house, it, I was under the impression my mom had stopped the pain pills. Uh, when I walked in the house, I saw her with her chin chin down on her chest and, and everybody that knows the opiate thing, man, people nod off and they just drop their heads down to their chins. And I saw mom in that position and I'd seen her in that position before and sitting next to her on the next to her recliner was a big jar full of pain pills. And uh, I instantly flipped out, man. I knew that I could not stay sober in that house if those pain pills were in there. Right. Um, there was no way I was staying sober in a house that had pain pills in it. I couldn't stay away from them. Well, I couldn't get, you know. So why did you, why did you say that you were going to stay at your, why did you suggest that you were going to be at your parents' place? You knew that your mom was. No, I, by this time I thought my mom was off of them. Oh, okay. So she had done, she had, because of my problems. Uh -huh. She wasn't going to do them anymore. You know, she was not going to have them either. And that was part of the deal when I was going to come over and do home incarceration. So when I walked in the house, I thought my mom has, was off the pain pills. Right. But as soon as I walked in, I saw them differently. And you know how earlier I said, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. I walked out of that house. Dad goes, where are you going? You know, and I said, I'll be back. Uh, I don't know. I, I got to go. Something come up. I walked out of that house and I said, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. And a bell went off and I said, yes, I do. I know one thing to do. Call your sponsor. And I called him up and uh, he said, well, uh, we can't go back to the judge and ask for something new. So you're just going to have to buffer up there and uh, let's get the deal done, get you moved in there, and then we'll work on getting you moved someplace like a recovery house or something like that. But right. you're just going to have to toughen up and, and, and deal with it for, for a short amount of time. And I said, okay. Uh, and he goes, oh, and uh, I want you to, this is going to give you a chance to test your reliance on your higher power. Well, I thought he said, we well, said I was going to test my higher power. Because, see, I'm trying to get a hold of this whole higher power deal that I didn't believe in, and it never worked for me in my life before. But he's uh, he's trying to give me a new angle on that. And, and he said, we're going to test your, he said, he's going to give me a chance to test my reliance on my higher power. And he said, just simply for the next week, in your prayers, prayer, pray that your higher power will support your recovery. Don't ask for nothing special. Just just pray that simply, that, that he support your recovery. I said, well, you know, that seemed like some awful weak advice. Uh, like, come on, you got to give me something better than that. But I followed his suggestions. And for the week I did that and I went down to the courtroom and they take you back in a, a little room and, and you have to sign the plea agreements and stuff. And I was signing to a D felony. It was a B felony before. So they dropped it down to a D felony and it said, uh, paperwork i picked up the paperwork and i'm reading it and it said you will be uh you are sentenced to three years in the indiana department of corrections one year to be spent in home incarceration at the following address and on that paper was my home address it said another year to be spent on probation and the third year to be suspended pending com successful completion of the other two and when i saw that home address on there i didn't know uh, I thought they'd made a mistake. Uh, 
I thought, man, I here now I'm gonna have to tell them that they made a mistake. And how do I do that down here? You know, because it's intimidating being down there. You know, you I'm not the kind of guy that's gonna go, hey, judge, you made a mistake over here. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, I'm just not. And I don't remember the time. Then they march you out in front of the judge and they do court recording and they slab the gavel and all that. My head is spinning so much. I have no recollection of that actually happening. To this day, I don't remember doing that. Only thing I remember thinking about was this mistake they had made. And uh, I walked out of that place with that. I don't know what to do again. Mm-hmm. But now I got a new tool. I call my sponsor. All right. So I got out of there and I called my sponsor and he started laughing. And uh, I didn't think it was real funny. It seemed pretty serious to me. And he said, uh, what you been praying for all week? What I tell you pray for all week? And it hit me. And I put two and two together. That's something I was unable to do until uh, this man just got into my life. And I said, uh, I've been praying for God to support my recovery. And he said, looks like he did it. And uh, I have people talking and tell me that uh, AA is a rigorous program of honesty. And that I needed to go down there and tell them that they had made a mistake. And when I told my sponsor about that, he said that would be undoing God's work. Mm-hmm. So here I am. That problem was solved for me over there. It was unsafe for me to go stay at my mom and dad's house. And, uh, and I came here. Uh, I went in and checked in to the home incarceration, called them up. You know, they said make an appointment, called them up and went down there and they strapped on that ankle bracelet. And they was making sure it would talk to this machine. And I didn't know what that machine was. And then he said, okay, let's go to your house. And I was like, man, I didn't want to go to my house. I didn't, you know, I, what are you doing coming to my house? <laughs> but what they had in that box was a breathalyzer that was going to be installed in my home. Mm. And uh, and I only had one, you know, I, I was like, they said, you know, you got a landline, right? I was like, uh, I don't know. <laughs> he said, well, you'll need one. And uh, I come home and we found the right land. We found a landline. It was upstairs. The only one that was live was upstairs. Mm-hmm. And uh, we plugged that breathalyzer in there and uh it would talk to the ankle bracelet so every time i left when it broke contact it would send a note down there saying what time i left mm-hmm. every time i come back it would log back in every time i come back it would whistle and i'd have to go blow in it um and one sunday and you because know, they just did it erratically and one sunday they they alarmed it i was sitting here with that same girl like same girls hanging around with me now i got an ankle bracelet on my ankle and uh and one Sunday, it went off seven times. Hmm. Uh, they, they hit me seven times. Uh, so one time, I was heading back down the steps, and it went off again. And I had to turn right around up. I didn't even get down the steps before it went off again. And uh, and I thought about that, and I'm like, yeah, I understand that, you know, because there would be guys sitting here going with a cold beer in your hand going, once they breathalyze me, I'll probably have a <laughs> few hours before they right, do it again. Right, right. You know? And uh and I, man, I can tell so many stories about being on incarceration. I went down there and uh, I was scared I was going to, uh, thought I was going to mess it up by accident. And so see, these these miracles are happening in my life and my life is turning out, you know, although none of this stuff is great news, it's a hell of a lot better than the alternatives. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and and my mind will automatically goes to worst case, you know, when I wake up in the morning, and my, uh, I got a bump on my leg. I'm all sudden, you know, I instantly think it's cancer. You know, uh, so I'm always looking at the worst case thinking that. So when it started getting better than that, uh, when you, you got, know, so- 
when you got home incarceration and you moved it back into your home, your neighbors didn't complain about it. They didn't go to the court and say, what the yeah, hell, that man? Is in my, yeah, that's a good reminder, man. And I thought that I thought for sure that, you know, somebody would blow the whistle on that. Uh, I thought that I was going to get caught. You know, that's one of the reasons that that kind of line of thinking right. uh, was why I thought that I would need to tell them right. that they made a mistake because mm-hmm. the neighbors know, you know, and they're not going to. But they didn't. Now, I remember a couple of times, not too long after that, man, we had a big windstorm and it blew over his tree and his tree hit my house. It didn't damage it real bad, but it's a pretty big tree. And uh, and it's laying all in my front yard. And all my life, I've, we've taken care of that ourselves, you know. So I call home incarceration and I ask them, can I cut, I got to get this tree off my house. And, mm-hmm. uh, and they said, okay. You know, and they said, just when you come back in, call us mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, keep in touch. And so I went outside and fired up the chainsaw and I'm out there with my back to that house across the street. And I look up into my, into my, I see in the reflection on my house windows, mm-hmm. I see a girl across the street and she's jumping up and down with her middle finger out on both hands. And, uh, and, and I just, I pulled it back down, man. I saw her and she didn't know I could see her because my back's to her. And I went back to cutting and I kind of, I kept an eye in that glass. You know, and I seen her, she got frustrated because she couldn't get my attention and she like threw her hands down and she just turned around and stomped off and went back in the house. Right. Uh, but nobody ever did. No, it, it, you know, so many things, you know, every time I got arrested when I was a little kid, well, even that ball team thing, mm-hmm. my name went in the paper. My mom, dad are hometown people, man. And over and over and over again, man, they had to have the embarrassment of seeing their little son's name in the paper. We got picked up for pot, got arrested for DUI, got kicked off the basketball team. And, you know, uh, I was watching in the paper for this time, man, and my name never hit the paper on this particular thing. I don't know how. Uh, again, I count it as a, you know, as a miracle. It saved my mom and dad the shame uh, and embarrassment one more time. Um, you ever patch things up with that neighbor? Yeah, I did. Uh, I still have one neighbor who has uh, made it known that if I step on his yard he will shoot me uh i have one neighbor here that i haven't made good with uh, i started loving recovery i'm walking around with an ankle bracelet on i'm i feel freer than ever i worked these steps in about four months with my sponsor uh, i was making amends uh the old man that i stole from there was an emergency protective order so i couldn't do amends with them face to face Matter of fact, I was actually technically breaking the EPO when I drove out the street. Mm-hmm. But my lawyer just told me to, because I told my lawyer, you know, I was like, you know, it's at my house. And he goes, yeah, I noticed that. You know, there's no, <laughs> what do I do when I'm like uh, driving out the street? He said, just keep your head straight forward. Do not glance in their direction. Do not just, just drive in and out of that street and, and never let them catch you look in that direction. And that's what I did. Um, did you lose your job while during the car? No, man. I'm going to work. Uh, that's another thing. You know, I thought that, you know, all these worst case scenarios, you know, so now I think I got to tell my employer I'm on home incarceration. And when I went down to figure out how to do all this stuff, they said, uh, I said, uh, Cause I'm getting to go to meetings. They let me go to meetings. They let me take my kids to places like scouts and dance mm-hmm. and they let me go to work. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's really all I, the, those were the three things I could do was participate in my recovery. Um, 
participate in my recovery, go to work and get my kids places that I need to get them to. Mm-hmm. Um, I got sidetracked with the noise that happened here. Um, all I had to do was turn in my pay stubs mm-hmm. for work. Right. Uh, I had to get signatures when I went to a meeting. There's meeting sheets, and you got to get somebody at the meeting to sign it. Of course, you know, who could, you could forge it, but I wasn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I went to scouts, I had to take a piece of paper over there and get the scoutmaster to sign it. When I went to dance, the dance lady, I'd had to have a piece of paper to sign it. So every Friday, I would go into home incarceration. I would give them all my verifications for everything that I'd done last week. Mm-hmm. And I'd turn in a schedule for next week. Mm-hmm. And then next week, they would look at my verifications from last week against my schedule, make sure it right. all matched up. And we just did that every right. Friday for right. a long time. Right. Uh, and, your ex- to, and your ex-wife was was okay with you still being around. The well, world. once I was sentenced and everything, I finally told her what I, I got honest with her. And she's, just, you know, she didn't get mad at me in 2011 when I told her I had a drinking problem. As a matter of fact, she was wondering what the hell was wrong with me. And now that she saw, I had, you know, now that we had a problem, we got, we can do something about it. You know? right. And so she's actually, and she's really been great for most of the time. I mean, she did want to, she really, uh, when I was active using in the, in the after, after, uh, after I had that year of sobriety, uh, she really had very little use for me. But we have patched up this relationship. And when I told her what is happening, what had happened, you know, and where I was at, because I had to, I'm on home incarceration now. I got to let her know what's going on. Right. Uh, you know, I've got the kids. we got 50-50 kid thing going on. And uh, and when I told her, man, she, you know, took it like a champ and cooperated. And, um, you know, she's always, she's, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing that uh, the support I had around me. Um, but, um, you know, we got to be, well, one thing, you know, I told you I went to Thailand and I got to go to all these places all over the world through this job. And I mean, I traveled, I'd be someplace once or twice a year, uh, a lot of times internationally, but especially all over this country. And I was scared to death work was going to ask me to go someplace. <laughs> Right. And that was going to get the cat out of the bag. You know, I'm going to say, no, nope, I can't go. And they're going to say why. And I pull up my pants leg and point at my ankle bracelet and tell them that's why. Um, and that whole time, uh, not once was I asked to go anywhere. So your, your, your work, like never, never figured out that never knew that you were incarcerated. No, we had these meeting rooms, these horseshoe meeting rooms, you know, have horseshoe size shaped table in them, you know, uh-huh. uh, I saw a couple of times, like I'd be in one of the meetings, you know, and I'd see some dude kind of his eyes would drop down below the table and he'd be looking like him. You could almost see him like, what the hell's that on his ankle? And uh, I'd, I'd, I'd rustle my pant leg back down, you know, my, I started wearing pants that were a little bit too long. Uh, so they wouldn't ride up and, and show that. And a couple, one guy come up, I was joking around one day and we were sitting around and it was two o'clock in time for me to call my sponsor. And, and I was kind of done with this water cooler talk anyway. And I, and my phone rang and I said, Oh, that's my probation officer. I got to go. And cause I just, I'm a jokester, you know, right. and a little bit later, a guy come over and he goes, you weren't kidding about that. Were you? And I was like, kidding about what? You know, <laughs> kidding about everything. He goes, you weren't kidding about that probation officer. And I, he said, I seen your ankle. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, I was actually kidding about the probation officer. That was actually the sponsor that he called, but mm-hmm. Uh, so there was a couple guys there and, and, you know, and the one buddy who took me to the meeting, but work never, ever found out. Um, so 
it got to be close. To, I, it was, I was on home incarceration about nine months, and this gal who was like, you get a, you get a correction officer and you get a social worker. Mm-hmm. And every time I would go down there, I would turn in the verifications and do all that with the corrections officer, and they were pretty stiff. Matter of fact, one day he goes up. I've sat down and he goes, oh, what time's your watch say right now? And I was like, 7.35. And he said, good. He said, see this clock on my computer? That computer and your watch are right on time for one another. So long as you will stay on time for your watch, you'll be uh, good. He said, because here, let me show you. And there's a big red line across on one of my events that I'd left my house 92 seconds early this morning. 92 seconds, (laughs) a minute and a half. Mm-hmm. I had left early this morning. Now, the funniest part about that was, is that I had left early to get to him on time. You know, I mean, I, I, I'm not watching my time that closely, but he did. He read me the right act that morning. And I thought for, you know, I was kept on waiting for him to like to break a smile or something, you know, just kind of right. tell me he was screwing with me. But he was not, man. He was dead serious. And this, uh, this Janine, this, uh, social worker down there. Uh, I'm not talking about her too, man. When I met her, it was like an angel. Uh, that lady went to bat with me, went to bat for me against those, because uh, they tried to trip you up in home incarceration. They mm-hmm. tried, you know, they want, it was almost like they wanted you to screw up. And, uh, you know, my mom had had a stroke, which eventually killed her. Uh, my dad had, uh, tumor on his pituitary gland and he was passing out and falling down. They were trying to schedule him for surgery. And, uh, a lot of things were going on that it was very inopportune time for me to be on home incarceration. And I broke those, some of those rules once in a while. Dad called me at two o'clock in the morning and said, Hey, uh, mom fell again and I need some help getting her up. Uh, I would call probation office and tell them, you know, leave a, leave it on a voicemail and I would go help dad and I'd come back home. And when, when I come back in the next time, uh, she was always going to bat for me. Uh, and, and, uh, one day I walked in there and she goes, what do you think about getting, it was nine. I've been on it for nine months. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I said, she said, what do you think about getting that taken off next week? And I said, I love that. She said, no, seriously. And I was like, why would I not want to? And she's just, you know, seeing what you think about that. And I said, why? And she said, well, you know, we look at people and if they're doing what they're supposed to be doing, and I know you're doing, I know you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. Uh, I can see it. I know, I I know you are recovering and, uh, and, and we, we allow some people to get off early. And so uh, my one year home incarceration turned into nine months, which maybe don't sound much to many people, but, uh, uh, one year, uh, nine months is a long time to be on home incarceration. You know, shower with that thing and live with it. Ever, you know, it's 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 not it's not it's not meant to be uh, fun. Yeah. Uh, you know, they lock you down when you go to home incarceration. Everybody, they lock them down for fifteen to thirty days where you don't get to do anything. They let you go to work, but that's it. Mm-hmm. When I went down there and talked to her. Uh, she broke that rule for me out of the gate because she knew that it had been detrimental to me to not to go to meetings every day like I've been going for some time. Right. And she's, you really going to air these meetings every day? And I said, I really am. I swear. I'll, you know, I, she was okay. And she's told the people down there, the correction people, that they needed to not lock me down. They needed to let me keep on going to my meetings. Uh, she ended up taking some meditation classes with me and 
attending my birthdays, my sobriety birthdays. She's a friend on Facebook. Uh, one day she called me up and she was in, uh, I went down, I went down there one day and I could tell she wasn't okay. And, uh, you know, most of the time when I went down there, it was all about me. And I went down one day and she said, uh, I said, she was asking me a couple of questions and I said, are you okay? You don't seem, you don't seem normal. And she said, she, she started crying. And, uh, she said her husband had just been diagnosed with, uh, uh, pancreatic cancer or something real bad. And, mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, there was an energy shift there all of a sudden where, you know, uh, for months, I've been coming down there and she's been supporting me. And all of a sudden that table turned, man, and I'm finding myself supporting her on the other side of the table. Right. Uh, she took time out of her day, the day he died, to call me and tell me that she lost her husband. Here, I'm a damn, you know, I'm an inmate, uh, you know, a past inmate. And mm -hmm. we've become friends enough that she got, took time out of that day to call me and tell me what was going on. But... Uh, I still had to serve the rest of that time out and I still was on probation for another year and I was still scared. They would ask me to travel. And in September of the next year, I should be off in like February. And, uh, in September of the prior year, they put me on this team at work that we were going, the special team, <laughs> you know, here I am I'm doing what I'm doing. All of a sudden I'm getting promoted and getting picked to be on these special teams. And they wanted to send me to Japan. They were going to send this team to Mitsubishi, to Nagasaki, Japan for three weeks to get some training on this new technology. And I thought, oh, God, what am I going to do now? And I went down and talked to my probation officer, different set of folks now. You know, once you shifted out of the home incarceration, you were different people. And she said, uh, you know, if you were going to Tennessee or Alabama or someplace like that, we could probably do it. But we can't get <laughs> you out of the country. Right. And, uh, and my sponsor would always remind me, you know, uh, Cause it's just living in today, you know, right. and that wasn't a problem for today. Right. And so next thing you know, that gets postponed to October. It's postponed to November. They don't want to do it in December and January because of the holidays and new year. Mm -hmm. Bump out. I get off a of home and I get off of probation on February the 18th. And on February the 28th, I'm standing on top of the mountain in Nagasaki watching the, Nagasaki nightscape, which is one of the top three nightscapes in the world, according to a couple of magazines, with the sun setting over the ocean behind me. You know, uh, two yeah. weeks ago, I couldn't two weeks ago, I couldn't leave the county without asking permission. And now I'm standing on the other side of the world. That uh, must have been an experience. Assignments. Yeah, it was. It was. Uh, I went to an AA meeting over there. I had one of the most powerful days that I've ever had in my entire life. I had journaled the whole thing of a day I spent, we were, you know, on a Saturday, I got on, they had old time trolley cars and I took a complete tour of Nagasaki and I ended my day in a Japanese AA meeting over there. And not a person over there could understand a thing I said, and I couldn't understand the thing they said. Didn't matter. It didn't matter. This is one of the coolest things I've ever done. Beautiful. Uh, yeah. And those are the, you know, I make this, I've got this thing called a miracle list because, and at the very least, this miracle list, you know, definition of a miracle, and I have a few of them, uh, but at the very least, this miracle list I have are things that weren't, would not have happened had I not in, ended up getting sold. Yeah. Uh, you know, my life could be in a completely different direction uh, on June 18th of 2014. That was a turning point. And, uh, 
because of the 12 steps and a wonderful support group, uh, I get to, I get to, I get to do things, man. And that's why I have this, you know, that's how I'm self-employed today. You know, that job tapped me on the shoulder and laid me off. I've been, I was sober four years and they tapped me on the shoulder and laid me off. And, uh, uh, I have no hard feelings. It gave me a nice separation package and, uh, it gave me time to do what I always wanted. I've always been a woodworker. And, uh, in uh, 2017, I built this little wood shop in my backyard. It was some kind of, uh, far out dream that maybe I can make a living doing that someday. And, uh, today I stand here and that's what I'm doing. Uh, that's all my miracle is too. But I will tell you, man, it hasn't been all, uh, what we like to say it hasn't been all, uh, rainbows and unicorn farts. Uh, there has been tough times, man. And, and when I was 14 months sober, uh, I told you said something about that stroke. My mom uh, passed. It's actually on Super Bowl Sunday. Uh, one thing that I'm forever grateful for is I was able to make amends with, uh, with her while she was still alive. Mm -hmm. Uh, she was not in very good shape, but I know she understood me and, yeah. and, and I see time and time again where people have let that opportunity go by them. And, uh, it's one of the things that 12 steps, uh, you know, I could die today and, uh, and I don't owe anybody anything, you know, I've cleaned up my mess, man, my karmic field is balanced mm -hmm. and you know that's the thing when people end up you know that's one of the biggest things on deathbeds is people end up with a with the unfinished business yeah. you know uh they never patched it up with their brother they never patched it up with whatever you know they never admitted to this and i can say with 100 certainty today that my karmic scale is balanced mm -hmm. uh, that's a hell of a nice feeling except with that one neighbor who wants and who's, who's going to shoot you if you yeah, the one guy. Yeah, and you know what? I have perfect timing. Uh, I have perfect uh, confidence that that's going to get settled, Tom. Yeah. yeah, I do. But you're right. There's one. But I actually feel okay about that. I don't hold no, no it's, grievance. It's just, you know, it, it, I mean, and some of these things do, just takes time, right? Yeah, and all I can do is clean up my side of the street, yeah, right? For sure. It's not because I'm not willing to do it. Uh, um, you know, mom dying was a was a was a tough thing. Um, you know, you end up with these things that as far as I'm concerned, that's still early sobriety and 14 months sober and, and losing her. And, but, you know, I was there to support dad. And it's a weird thing when, uh, not too long ago, nobody could trust you mm -hmm. and nobody could depend on you for anything. And, uh, and my dad is telling me that, uh, how much it means to him that he can count on me today. That, uh, that, you know, he said, you've always been here for me. And that ain't the truth, but in recovery and throughout mom's thing, I actually was able to turn that around. Uh, one day my, my ex-wife called me and like I said, that's another relationship that got patched up. And uh, she said, you need to come by after work. And I said, uh, I don't play those games anymore. You know, we need to talk. See, I got a, I got a, I'm standing on different ground today and I'm not playing. We need to talk. You're going to tell me what we need to talk about. I'm not walking into a trap. And uh, I said, you got to give me some kind of idea of what we need to talk about. And she said, it's too sensitive. You need to come by. And I just took her word for it. I went over and I got there and she said, uh, you should sit down. And, uh, and I sat down and, and, and she told me that her father had been molesting my 12-year-old daughter. Her father. I've been fishing with that man. He's been my father-in-law for 
you know, 17 years me and her were married, uh, I take him to my deer camp hunting. Uh, I treat him in a way that you really ought, you know, I stole his pills. <laughs> but other than that, uh, and, you know, there's a thing about, like, uh, there, there's a analogy we like to use that, you know, where you, you basically go through life with a backpack on your back, uh, like a big garbage can with backpack straps. And everything you run up against in life, you pick up and put in that can. It's kind of like a hard drive, you know, like when, and, and, and so no matter how much you try to delete your hard drive, the FBI gets on it, man, they'll be able to find what you're hiding. Right. And that's kind of the same thing with this trash can. You know, we try to put this stuff away and forget about it and all that. And uh, before long, and, and my, my visual of it is before long, this is like a big uh, sloppy mess of stuff I'm carrying around, you know, when I'm at my worst and I can smell it wafting over my shoulder. And when I get too close to you, I think you can smell it too. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and that's my, where my self-esteem was at, you know, in this process, we dumped out that garbage can and we cleaned it up and we got rid of the bad stuff and put it where it belonged in the past. And, uh, at the end, you got this garbage can that maybe is 25%, 30% full and it's clean. Uh, because someday you're going to need that space in that garbage can when you get hit with something like being informed that your daughter had been molested by a family member. And uh, I don't how know how... How, was it, how old was your daughter at that point? She was 12. Uh, I don't know how to handle stuff like that, man. I'm a big firearms enthusiast. enthusiast. Of course, I'm not anymore because I'm a felon. But... Uh, you know, there's a part, in, there's a piece of my life I didn't care about breaking laws or following the rules. Uh, murder or at least a severe beating would have been some stuff that would have seemed like would have fit in my mind. Mm. And I said, that's, I said to her, I remember going, there's some kind of mistake. Something else is, the, there's some other excuse for this. That's not what happened. Mm-hmm. And, uh, she said, yeah, it is. And instantly this uh, program, particularly through our eight step, man, has taught me to forgive people. Because if I don't have the power to forgive people, man, it makes life awful tough to walk. And uh, and I knew at some level that's what I was going to have to do. I went into a meeting that night. I think it was a Tuesday. And I went to my meeting that night. And he says, anybody got a burning desire to share with those guys what was going on in my life? And those guys wanted his address. They were going to go get him. And, you know, I saw the anger in their eyes. And, you know, I thought, you know, these guys are madder in hell. They're angry. So I don't have to be. And, uh, you know, my ex-wife, as crazy as this sounds, supported her dad. She told me, don't tell. We're going to, he's going to go get some treatment. Excuse me. And, uh, and he never did. And, uh, we took Carissa to therapy and I kept on thinking that for some reason, I, and I had my sponsor in my hip pocket this whole time, uh, that I didn't have to just straight up call the cops. Now that's probably, you know, I don't know if I made the right decisions or not in hindsight, but I said to myself, if Chris goes to get therapy, the therapist has to tell on that, right? That's the law. 
They they can't not, uh, you know, that'll let the cat out of the bag and, and any confidentiality she's, I can't remember what they call it, but it's some kind of reporting, mandatory reporting or something. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, he didn't, nothing happened. And then he kept on saying he's going to get some therapy. And I kept on calling her and asking, and, you know, I kept on getting a dance and, uh, you know, I'm embarrassed to say this, man, but it was, uh, it's like 90 days after the event. And I told Angie, I called her and told her she had, her dad had 24 hours to turn himself in or I was going to call the cops. And I got a big long text that said something. One of one of the things that said in it is my dad is not a predator. He doesn't deserve to go to jail. And uh, I, I, re, I reiterated my, what I was going to do. And my sponsor told me to call CPS and that was the exact right thing to do. Uh, because I didn't, it's not up for me to call the cops really. I mean, I can, but let, let them investigate it and let them go after him. And that's what happened. Uh, he ended up getting four years in prison. I think he's getting out this year. Uh, he didn't get prison time for, uh, touching my daughter. He got prison time because his computer was full of child pornography. Oh, jeez. Uh, I don't really, you know, we have a thing called a third step here where uh, I turn my will and my life over to the care of this higher power. And uh, I got to stop playing God. And uh, that was one of the big things there was it wasn't up to me what he got sentenced for, for how long. I had to let go of that. That right. was not my job. Uh, I wasn't going to do anything that helped him get any less time. There was a couple of times where somebody called me and asked me some questions like I was going to, you know, kind of hint that maybe I'd come and say something in his defense. I was like, Oh, are you kidding me? Um, you know, at Christmas, my daughter and I have a father's day card in there now, um, that I just got the other day. Uh, you know, I was able to support my daughter and, uh, and be there for her through this and still am today. And, um, That Christmas, I got one of her handmade cards. Part of what it said was, thank you for being the only person who supported me through this past year. And uh, we have a good relationship today. She's working through stuff still. This is the kind of shit that, like, that. this is the kind of stuff that you know, she likes to smoke a little reefer now. Uh, <laughs> and, I, and I warrant, you know. Uh, I, I, I speak from my experience is what I do. I don't warn her. Uh, I tell her what happened to me as a result of that. And, uh, Hey dad, he's wandering around. He, I asked him earlier if he could kind of keep the ambient noise down while he's doing this. Okay. Um, I don't know how to walk through something like that. But this support group of mine, it felt like a giant safety net that carried me through it where I could be of service to my daughter uh, during that time and uh, and not let what, as far as I'm concerned, is, I don't know, a top 10 or top five or maybe a top three parent's worst nightmare. Yeah. Uh, I don't know how to do that. But as a result of having this program on my life, I somehow did it. I somehow walked through that in, uh, in the best way I could. And, um, 
that's when I'm, that's why I'm really glad that that garbage can had room left in it. And there'll be new things come up, you know, I'll lose my, my father lives with me. Uh, I get to take care of him today. Uh, he's in pretty good shape, but I get to be there for him. He's my roommate. He lives here. Mm-hmm. Uh, so one way I can do what we call, uh, step 12 says, uh, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to other alcoholics and we practice these principles in all our affairs. And, uh, I get to be a guy who's practicing step 12 and practicing this thing by giving back to my dad. And, you know, he sat down there and said that night, let's go in, take a shower, hit the sack. We'll deal with this tomorrow. It's all, it's going to be okay. You know, he's had my back from the beginning too. So today I get to have his. Um, I have a few things that I know probably are getting a lot of time, you know, Recovery's treating me so good. I get to speak a lot. I get these kind of things. You had said in the beginning about, uh, about, you know, I saw a meme other day that said, be the reason someone else believes recovery is possible. Mm-hmm. And that's why I do this right here. Uh, by telling my story, it gives other people permission and the belief that, you know, if I came from where I came from and I have what I have today, that mm-hmm. you can too. Mm-hmm. And I can say, I get a new guy today and I can say this because it was said to me in the beginning, a man told me, he looked in my eyes and he said, this was the first night I rolled into AA in 2011. He looked me right in the eyes and he said, Dan, if you have this thing, this thing called alcoholism, this thing I got, he said, if you work these steps and practice these principles in your daily life, your life's going to get a whole lot better. And then he let that hang for a minute and he goes, but. You got this thing I got, this thing called alcoholism. If you got that and you don't work these steps and you don't practice these principles in your daily life, your life's going to get a whole, a whole lot effing worse. And it's like he had a crystal ball that night, man. Right. Because I watched that happen to my own life. Mm-hmm. You know, I just half-assed it. There's a few times in that book it says half measures avails us nothing. Uh, we don't get. You know, most of my life I could get away with a B. I couldn't get away with a B in this. Right. I had to try to get, I had to put all my chips, push all my chips to the middle of the table and give my all to this. Um, I have a shirt on right now from the retreat I had. Was It's actually the second one of the particular series, but this, I have a men's retreat every May where we get about 20 guys, goes out to that place in, my, in the country and I always make sure it's about half veterans, about half sober guys and about half new guys. And we go out there and, uh, and fellowship all weekend and, and, and show these new guys what recovery can be. Mm-hmm. Because we tell, you know, you said a lie earlier, you know, and I, you made me giggle. You're not a lie, but you had said uh, a lie. We tell ourselves that we can stop anytime we want to. Yeah. It was these lies that the alcoholic tells themselves, and that's one of them. Another one is I ain't hurting nobody but myself. Mm-hmm. Another one we tell each other is we'll never have any more fun. We'll never have any friends. And uh, that retreat is an example of that those lies are not true. Yeah. Uh, this was the ninth one that was this past May. And I have seven years. Of, I will have eight years. I have seven and a half years of sobriety almost exactly. Uh, I had two I had two retreats the, my second year of recovery and two my 
third, but that started getting to be too much and I backed it down to once a year. I take out down there and do fist steps. There's absolutely nothing in my life that fulfills my soul more than walking another man through this work and watch them have the same results that I have. Mm-hmm. And to have the confidence to tell them, you know, they got legal problems. They got a wife that wants to leave them. And, and to do the same thing my sponsor did with me and just keep me focused on this work mm-hmm. and just let God handle it. Higher power, whatever you believe in. That's another beautiful thing is that AA uh, and the 12 steps uh, encourage you to develop a, a, a relationship with a higher power of your understanding, mm-hmm. not everybody else's. Right. And, then, and then even better than that, once you have kind of got something you like, we don't reject one another for what you pick. Because that's the thing the world does, you know, they, we reject one another because the God you believe in is not the same one I believe in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a beautiful thing in, in recovery. And the truth of the matter is, uh, let's see, I've, I've sponsored 22, 23 men since I've been sober. 23 guys who are still sober that went all the way through the work with me. Not I've sponsored some that bailed early and didn't call me tomorrow and stuff like that, but, uh, successful cases. And, um, so I know that guarantee is true that, uh, that your life is going to get better if you'll do this. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, I have that proof in my hands, uh, and right in front of me, I can't deny it. And probably every one of them, 23 guys has a different idea of about a higher power. And they all work, you know, every right. one of them, it right. works for that guy. Right. So ultimately it doesn't really matter. It does seem to be a requirement, mm-hmm. but it, uh, it doesn't matter. We started a 12 step program for anyone and everyone here in Louisville, Kentucky. And we do it on zoom. Also, there's a few meetings. We call it 12 step spiritual recovery. We acronym it T S S R. Uh, so anybody out there that might want to like a, I say it fits three things. Uh, People who don't have alcoholism or addiction, but they know something's going on. My life shouldn't be like this. There's got to be more to life than this. Right. Uh, these tools will do this for you, too. You don't mm-hmm. not, you know, up until now, the hundred or so 12 step fellowships, you have to have something going on like obesity or gambling or addiction or alcoholism. Uh, we invite everybody just to come. You don't have to have something. Mm-hmm. Uh, we when we say or we go around circle and we say we uh, I, I we say I'm Dan and I am one, too. And all I'm saying is I'm one of you guys too. I'm yeah. in. Mm-hmm. Uh, so people who doesn't fit with people who have been through the steps, maybe they're already in a 12 step fellowship. Maybe want a different look at it, a little different angle, maybe an opportunity for some service work to come in here and help other people go through the work that, that normally you wouldn't meet, you know? Yeah. Uh, and the other one is that some people just say, uh, AA wasn't for me, man. I just couldn't fit in. Mm-hmm. And this is the back door to the same tools. Right. Uh, without the AA uh, stigma attached mm-hmm. to it, do that. People, if anybody's interested in it, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll get Tom a couple of ways that people can get a hold of me if they are. Uh, and then I started this podcast and, and I named it after my home group. It's a spiritual underground podcast. And I do this with people once a week. And I sit down and we tell these stories, these, these stories of recovery, these miracles that happen in people's lives as a result of work, doing this work. And, uh, and because that's how we carry this message is that, you know, here, that's how we've carried messages since we've been writing things. No, this is how we've been carrying messages since before we had the written word. You know, Buddhist, Buddhist stuff was never written. Right. That was prior. You know, none of that actually got documented. 
right. but those lessons are still out there, right? By his stories. Mm -hmm. uh, the Bible is stories that are meant to teach us things. Right. Uh, your story is important. Uh, and I stand around, I believe mine is too, and that's why I tell it. And I invite people to come on my podcast and, and tell their stories. And, you know, we do that in the AA meetings, but you only got about 40, 45 minutes or so in an hour long AA meeting. By the time they read the openings and they read the closings, you just got this little clip. Well, on my podcast, people get to actually tell a full feel that they feel complete, that they've actually told their story similar to what I, the way I feel today is that obviously I've, uh, I feel very complete in, in, in what I've shared today. I'm completely at a loss for words. Um, this is obviously not something that I'm generally um, associated with. <laughs> um, so you're fortunate if this has not been a problem in your life and anywhere you you've been fortunate in it. And but I, I I I feel like I feel like words need to be said especially since this is an audio podcast. <laughs> yeah. um, so, yeah. I mean, the, the only thing I can say is thank you and bless you for, for, for sharing the story. Now, th there is a part where this episode is supposed to be talking about small businesses and having a yeah. spotlight on, on your small business. Yeah. Um, and it, it almost feels anticlimactic, but I, I, I do hope that you have, if you have a couple minutes, if you can tell me about it's, a little bit about you know, your, 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 your woodworking business. So since I was a little kid, there's been a wood shop in my grandpa's garage. And it's something that I love to do. When I went to grandpa's man, I'd go out there. I've cut my fingers somehow or another. My dad and my grandpa would give me permission to go out there and use power tools and stuff probably long before I should have. <laughs> but there was something that touched me. And there's a few things I do in life. Like uh, I like to go hunting. And when I'm out in the woods, there's something. I don't kill anything. I just use it for, for a not that I'm against that. I just don't. Uh, but there's something to be out in nature that, that settles my soul that taking a guy through the 12 steps is another one, but making things out of wood is another place that my soul's always been touched since I've been a little kid and, uh, always in the back of my head. Uh, I had this dream, but it was like a, you know, it was an inaccessible dream that I could possibly do that one day. Mm -hmm. And, um, I've got some of the tools that are in my shop. They, when, when my grandpa died, uh, those tools came and they resided in this basement here when it was my mom and dad's house. Mm -hmm. So they were still around and I've been making stuff, but usually it was only on uh, only reason I ever made anything was because of necessity or something. I needed something. So I built it. Um, and, uh, this is another miracle. My father, I feel a little funny talking about, but he called me one day and he said, let's build a shop in your backyard. After I'd built out this house, he said, and put all woodworking tools out there in that shop. I'm like, Dad, I can't afford that. And he said, don't worry about it. I got it. And uh, and I went back to my sponsor, and I was like, man, I'm not feeling comfortable with taking this. It feels like charity, you know, and I don't, I don't know what to do. He said, and my sponsor always asks these real simple questions. He said, uh, did you ask him why he wanted to do that? I'm like, no. He said, why don't you go ask him why? And I went and asked him, and he said, well, I know it's always been a dream of yours, and I want to make you happy. And uh, I mean, I'll go argue with that. So that was before I lost my job. Mm -hmm. And then I lost my job and uh, had a couple people call me, wanting to know if I'd make them something. And I wasn't even in business yet. Uh, 
they were friends that knew I did woodworking and stuff, but they wanted something made and they called me and I started making stuff. Uh, and, and it turned into this little small business. I feel like Geppetto on the uh, Pinocchio thing. You know, I got this little shop in my backyard and I wake up in the morning and fix a cup of coffee and wander out to the backyard. And uh, as I said, I'm, I'm no, we had a little technical difficulty in the beginning. If I said it or not, you know, there's a thing that goes around and says, uh, uh, find something you love to do and make a living doing it. Uh, you, what, you'll never work a day in your life, I think, is the last part of that. And, uh, and that's happened to me uh, when I'm not, you know, the woodworking, custom woodwork is not cheap. Mm -hmm. uh, and so when I'm not, when I don't have, when the shop is not full and keep me busy, they're a handyman. My, my dad taught me how to fix stuff. And it's another, you know, it's, it's funny because it's service oriented. Uh, I go over to these people's house and I fix the things in their house. Mm -hmm. And they are super happy that the faucet's not leaking anymore. The cabinet door is working. The bedroom door will now shut and latch or the bathroom door will shut and latch and all that. And I walk off and they have a smile on their face because their stuff is fixed. And I have a little bit of money in my pocket to trade for it. And, uh, and somebody the other day, I said, uh, I told him, I, it was a 12 step guy. And I said, man, I'm just good at fixing things. And he goes, people too. And I said, <laughs> No, it's, that's the truth, man. And and so it's got that service aspect in it too, where I actually, same thing when you make somebody beautiful out of wood and you get to come and you set it down, you know, you deliver it. Yeah. I don't really show them much of the, you know, progress. I take the progress pictures. I'll share them with them after a fact, but I want the pow factor to happen when I drop that piece of wood in their uh, living room or whatever it is. And, uh, and that, that joy and satisfaction from making somebody else happy. You mm -hmm. know, the thing I get out of working somebody through the 12 steps, uh, you know, my, my, my engineering job paid me more. Mm -hmm. I would have told you back then that I couldn't exist on less than I was making. Then. Uh, come find out I can, you know, uh, and I'm really, I'm not, my life doesn't look all that different. It really mm -hmm. doesn't. Uh, I, I didn't know that I could, uh, uh, live on less. I'm comfortable. I get to go on vacation. I get to take time off. I get to go play plenty. So I'm not living on a shoestring or anything, but that's another thing that, uh, you know, it's another life lesson, you know, and they've been telling us that forever too. You know, it, it doesn't matter how much money you make, it won't be enough. Yeah. And, uh, and, and I've, I've found that not to necessarily be true here either. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I, and I also do some, you know, like built-ins and things like that for people where I come in and do built-in uh, uh, bookshelves and entertainment centers and stuff that are permanent fixtures. Somebody's house, not everything is, you know, I can like, I can build assemblies out in the shop and then take them and finish them up on site. Mm -hmm. um, is there a geographical region that you service or can you do this anywhere or do you ship out pieces? I suppose I could, you know, one of the things is, and it's why you get this. Some people, time people hire me to come put furniture together, right? You know, the, the stuff that comes flat shipped. Yeah. Uh, that's where, you know, uh, shipping stuff. Uh, right now I just serve basically the, what we call the Louisville metropolitan area, which is a, you know, maybe a 30 mile radius in Southern Indiana and maybe not the same, uh, uh, 30 mile radius down into Kentucky. Mm -hmm. Probably that, that circle. Um, but I have a guy right now calling me about a piece that he once built and he lives in uh, Tucson, Arizona. 
And we've been talking about, uh, because I take it, you know, we custom design it, our model, 3D model it up. We come to some kind of agreement so that, you know, he sees what he's getting. Mm-hmm. And one of the criteria with what we're talking about doing is it'll be something he'll have to do the final assembly on. So we will, we'll, we'll ship it and build mm-hmm. it in so where we can uh, ship it a little more economical. And yeah. uh, so I am, you know, that might be my first, uh, I sell some art pieces, uh, more arty like stuff and i know uh, you can see me but they can't i make ohm symbols out of wood uh the ohm symbol is and look it up if you don't know what it is but if you haven't you've seen it and if you're in yoga uh you'll know what it is uh because there's one of these on just about every yoga studio walls that's another thing i forgot to tell you in my recovery i became a yoga certified yoga teacher as another uh another miracle on my list that i would have never guessed but i shipped those i think the Furthest way I've shipped one of those was France. Uh, the shipping cost more than the item, <laughs> but they still wanted it. Well, it's a beautiful piece. Yeah, I make them out of all different wood. Uh, woods have a uh, wood has. You can find some data that will say it has different uh, spiritual properties, mm-hmm. and uh, it's one thing that I've really gotten in touch with. Uh, you know, the world is a spiritual place. You know, when 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 I got. What was wrong with me is I was spiritually sick. Uh, and when they told me that, I thought they meant I didn't have enough religion or I wasn't going to church enough and that kind of thing. Uh, what I come to find out is my very spirit, my soul, my essence had gotten ill. Mm-hmm. And it couldn't deal with the day-to-day stuff without some kind of substance to put on top of it. And that's what the 12 steps did was healed that spirit so that put me in touch with some different things like uh, different crystals like the amethyst is a soul some people will call it a sober stone it's a uh, it's associated with sobriety uh, different kinds of wood has different spiritual principles too and i have a page on a website so people can like if they want one of those and they want to know what they want it made out of i'll have them read those things and see what touches them and uh you know like cherry is love and heart and things like that and uh uh oak is strength and protection and uh each each wood has a has a different spiritual uh principle so like uh, I, I i jump on that and uh and use it uh when, when we make people stuff i do it with what i'm going to make your piece out of mm-hmm. is there is there any sort of type of woodworking that you kind of specialize in or just across the board or There's- you know, there's not, you know, my favorite stuff is, is when somebody has a picture off of Pinterest or something <laughs> and they say, they say, cause this, they say, I want one of these except for, right. you know, they'll need it to be fit to their space and they can't, like I built a uh, 51 inch wide bookcase for somebody. They didn't want a 48 off of, uh, Ikea. Right. They wanted to fill up this space on the wall and that, and I can do that. I can make it to the, to the width that they need it, or they wanted a different color or instead of down here, they want, sh- instead of shelves, they want, uh, cabinet doors, you know, and we just start with some visual idea of what somebody wants. And, and I, because all that, my background started out, as I said earlier, as a draftsman, mm-hmm. uh, I 3d model these pieces for them. And, uh, and we get, you know, the customer is involved in the design process. So they, you know, they seem to like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they, 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 we, we get to an end, uh, end 
custom design and you know it's not they don't get to see the colors of the wood and stuff yet that's the pow factor is that on the 3d you can't really do that right. but they see that what they're getting it looks like that and it also gives me a uh it, it resolves any uh surprises at the end of uh, i didn't know it was going to look like that kind of mm-hmm. stuff, you know mm-hmm. that's not what i meant uh that that uh, 3d model uh seals that up for me too that's what i love to do Can make one of these except for right amazing amazing um if people have questions for you regardless if it's woodworking or aa stuff or even if they have have questions about your your journey are you open to that i absolutely am uh you know i I do this woodworking gig and this handyman gig to keep the lights on and gas in the car right so that i can do this right here so that I can work my 12 step life. That's what, that's really, I found purpose in my life. It's given me a purpose. The rest of it's just to pay the bills. Mm-hmm. Uh, I help people get sober. That's what I do. So yes, I'm definitely open to it. I'm a little compartmentalized, but I don't really, you know, so I have an email address for the woodworking. Right. And I have an email address for the, the podcast, which is more. And then we got a, we have a website and stuff for the 12 step spiritual recovery. But, uh, if anybody wants to get with me, we'll just put, we'll just put my, 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 my woodworking company is DTM woodwork and handyman DTM. So go ahead and ask what that means. What's that mean? Day in the man. <laughs> DTM woodwork. And, uh, uh, and my email address there is just simply Dan at DTM net. That's the easiest one. The the podcast one is spiritualunderground.org. It's a little more difficult, but uh, more letters. Mm-hmm. But um, and I have a webpage, uh, dtmww.net, and uh, and or Google me. I'm, yeah, uh, I'm all I'll, over the place. And I'll have I'll have all those links in the in the in the show notes. Um, Dan, this is somebody been... out there is wondering if they're having uh, somebody out there is going has been going to bed at night going, man, I need to do something about this. Mm. I need to do something about this. And hopefully maybe today we gave them courage to take the first step and reach out to somebody. Hopefully. Yeah. Oh, one person will. It's a guarantee. <laughs> um, one final thing. Give you what, what's, what's give you, give, let's give your, let's give your podcast a plug. What's going on yeah, with the podcast? When when's it, when when do you have episodes? How do we find it? I put out new content every uh, Sunday morning at five a.m. Uh, so hopefully a lot of people like to wake up in the morning and listen to recovery on Sunday morning. It's called the Spiritual Underground Podcast. Spiritual Underground Podcast. Uh, there are other, you know, it's primarily twelve step recovery. Uh, that's my that's my anchor. But also uh, bring other people in because uh, this term recovery is uh, to find, my definition of it is to find that which was lost or stolen. Almost like recovering a stolen car mm-hmm. or finding some keys. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what I found was myself. I'd lost myself. I'd lost Dan in all that. Mm-hmm. So the thing in recovery is, uh, is doing that. So I also uh, invite people to come in who have different avenues on how to find themselves. I have my, the owner of my yoga studio, she found herself through the practice of yoga. Right. Um, so I do investigate and have people come in and talk about uh, other ways to uh, to get well, because uh, the 12 step, you know, even Bill Wilson said, we have no monopoly on this. 
Uh, you know, uh, Buddha says something. Uh, can't remember exactly, but the many paths to the same place that you know, uh, your journey will be different than mine. And and I investigate. You know, I, I invite people to come in and uh, tell me how it happened in their life and how did they uh, overcome their you know slay their dragon, whatever that dragon might have been. Right. Yeah, uh, Dan. Thank you so much for this and for allowing us um, the time to let it unfold and go down this journey with you. Um, I'm just going to leave it there because I have no words. I'm so touched. Yeah. Thank you. I uh, have really appreciated getting to know you a little better. And, uh, and, uh, and I like to extend the other direction to you, you know, uh, you come be on my podcast and I'll get to learn more about you. <laughs> I'd appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Dan. All right. Thank you, Tom. This podcast can be found on Spotify, iTunes, a bunch of other podcatchers, and wherever it is that you're listening to from now. Um, if you're enjoying this content, please like, subscribe, follow, rate, hit some bell icon, tell some friends, have a cookie, and definitely, definitely send smoke signals to help with the algorithms and to grow this community. And please let us know your suggestions about things that you'd like for us to talk about or if you just want to chat. We can best be reached at podcast.coyote.com. I'm Thomas, and thank you for listening to the Coyote Small Business Podcast. <laughs>